Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Boothcast. Now, Boothcast today is brought to you by Vicobi Ocean Performance. Uh, these guys have been working with me for the past eight years, and I just know I've got the best gear on when I'm out in the water, no matter what conditions th get thrown at me. Uh, I'm going to be either warm, I'm going to be cool, I'm going to be sun protected, I'm going to be safe. And these guys have basically everything you need when you're out in the water, whether that be on OC1, a surf ski, sailing, stand-up paddling, um, you name it, they've got the right gear for you. So if you want to find out more, please check out vicobi.com. And now I'm going to throw you over to my interview with Dean Gardner. Hello and welcome to Boothcast. On Boothcast, I speak to people about sport, business and the winning mindset. Uh, this Boothcast is brought to you by Booth Training, as always. And we're actually mixing it up a little bit. So we did a little one with Dean a few months ago. Uh, it was the first one. We had a bit of audio issues and it wasn't really about um, his journey and his life's um, and things that have happened in his life. So we're going to actually do one with him again and find out a little bit more about Dean and what he did along the way. Um, Dean Gardner is a, a nine-time Molokai champion. He is an entrepreneur. He runs an ocean paddler business that runs races, events, and also sells a lot of uh, skis and different stuff that helps everybody get a little bit better at ocean paddling. And I'm very lucky to have him on. So Dean, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Michael. No worries. I hear so, you're getting punished, punished by a bit of a storm in WA at the moment. We are. There's about 50 knots, but it's just starting to calm down. So it's been okay. We got an inlet uh, run down in Harvey, Harvey Inlet yesterday down in Manjo, which was quite nice to do something different. But um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's coming into winter. I'm not usually here, so I'm going to have to get used to these fronts because I don't think I'm going anywhere anytime soon. Um, can you tell the viewers um, who may or may not know who you are, which is probably quite rare, but a little bit about who you are and uh, where you're from? Okay. Um, I grew up in, my name's Dean Gardner. I grew up in uh, Perth in Western Australia. Um, I got into a little bit of clubby stuff sort of early in the piece. I just used to surf with my friends and then started doing some clubby stuff. Uh, I sort of went away from Perth for a while because I was a commercial fisherman and used to work in the Gulf Carpenteria and Exmouth and places like that. And uh, sort of went through a phase up to sort of my early 20s where I did that stuff and, and lifeguarded in Perth for the summer and then moved to Sydney sort of in my early 20s to, um, to chase the paddling dream. So I was sort of inspired by events like Molokai and stuff like that at and, uh, and uh, yeah, sort of made the move to Sydney. There wasn't much really happening in Perth. The fishing industry was in a bad state. And um, I, yeah, made that move over. And, you know, I've been in Sydney since, well, I've been in Sydney now longer than I was in Perth. So although I still feel like a Perth person, I am um, probably more of a Sydney person now. Yeah, so you were, so you were born in 65 um, in Subiaco in WA. Uh, you went to Maris Brothers College. How was, it, how was life growing up um, as a schoolboy? And were you involved in sport at a young age? Yeah, so I always played footy with um, the Wembley Downs Cats, Mighty Cats. And um, uh, at school, I played soccer and, and AFL. When I say footy, I say I mean AFL. Um, I... Didn't really go to the beach much as a, as a really young kid. I probably started when I got sort of 10 or 11. I did a little bit of nippers down at Floriate Beach and sort of got more involved. Um, my 
my neighbour at the time, um, Grant Brewer, was a was an awesome beach sprinter and beach flagger, probably the best in the country for his age group. And uh, his dad was the president of the, of the surf club at Florette, so they sort of talked me into going down there, and and uh, that was sort of my introduction to doing sort of the life-saving type stuff. Uh, from about 12, 13, 14, I was I used to spend you know most of my weekends at Scarborough with the with the mob down there and we'd surf and um, do all the things that you know juvenile delinquents do when you're that age and and um, uh, as as it, as I got older I realised that um, you know there wasn't really much point surfing in Perth all summer so I started I basically started paddling when I was about 14 or 15 just not competitively but just for fun with um, a guy you know Steve Lawrence and a couple of other guys from Perth and down at Florette, we all got into it and uh, yeah, and then uh, I didn't really start getting too much into the competition till a few years later. And, and about that same time, I, I started working on the boats, so I went away. Were you a competitive kid? Because you say you got involved in Florette Surf Club and you were doing obviously surf lifesaving like most kids do um, in Australia because it's sort of like that. I guess we all get filtered that way to so make sure that we can swim and make sure that we can uh, handle ourselves in the ocean. But were you a competitive nipper or did you compete at all when you were doing the nippers or was it just about how going down, having fun with your, with your friends and learning, learning those ocean skills? Yeah, I, I, not really. No, like um, the guys around me were, were very good at, at a lot of the stuff and I sort of just floated along and enjoyed the, you know, I enjoyed the water. I was out in the water for hours and, um, uh, the other guys were sort of a little bit more competitive. I, I kind of uh, just enjoyed going down the beach and, and doing that and, and messing messing around a bit. Um, I, I was I had a competitive mindset, but I wasn't really good at anything. So I just um, I just sort of floated around. But up till about the time I was about thirteen or four thirteen, I think I was. I um, I was actually quite a fatty, and. Um, a mate of mine, a good mate of mine at the time, a guy called Gary Merchant, who recently passed away, he um, he convinced me to come along and do powerlifting. He was the Australian powerlifting champion in his age group. So I went to, I used to go to a gym at Subiaco Oval actually, and um, three times a week, and and I started doing doing weights, and and like all that sort of fat stuff just just fell away, and um, it, it sort of sort of helped with a, with a bunch of things. Actually, it gave me a bit of strength and um, a bit of confidence and, and I sort of became more competitive in the footy side of things then and, and um, still wasn't doing much in the ocean from a competitive perspective, but was doing a lot in the ocean from a recreational perspective. So you were going, obviously, surfing off the, uh, the, the mighty city groin. Was that where your, where your local spot was? No, I'd predominantly surf uh, Florent groin. Believe okay. it or not, and um, and Scarborough and Trig with my, you know, with that with the sort of my other group of friends. I had my surf club friends, and then I had a whole another group of friends that weren't involved in in that sort of thing, and and my footy friends and stuff like that. So I sort of had two groups that I kind of moved between. Um, and uh, yeah, but you know, I love the days down at Scarborough. You know, back in the day at Scarborough, we used to just be able to leave our bags on the, on the grassy slope that used to be there in front of where Observation City stands now. And we just leave our bags on the, on the grass there, run down, go surfing, come back up and, um, you know, nothing was stolen. It was all, it was all cool. There'd be a group of about 20 or 30 blokes down there, you know, all the, 
all the local sort of guys. And yeah, it was pretty cool. It was good fun. Yeah, things have probably changed a little bit now down at Scarborough. I don't think you can leave your, leave your bag on a grassy knoll. I think it won't be there when you get back. Um, so you, obviously, you, you're obviously heavily involved in the ocean. You're surfing, you're doing surf club. Um, but when did you start to play footy and how much, like, cause I know it's a big part of your life and I know you still run around with all your busted joints and everything in your, in your footy teams still. Um, what was it about, uh, Aussie rules or AFL or footy, um, that you really loved and was it the team element you like enjoyed about, um, the footy games or was it more so that you just like enjoyed being in the park and kicking the ball around? Yeah. You know, initially it was just what everyone did, you know, in Perth there was, there was really only AFL at that particular time. So uh, you, either, you either did ocean stuff like clubbies or, or surfing or you played cricket in, in summer. Uh, and, and then in winter you played AFL. It was as simple as that. Or, you know, I guess um, at, at my school at Maris, there was a lot of Italians and Greeks and a lot of those guys played soccer, but the majority of people played, played AFL. So it was just, it was just sort of a, you know, a, a route that you took. Everyone sort of took the same route. So everyone I know around me was playing AFL and either doing cricket or the beach sports in, in, in summer. Um, but, uh, you know, I think um, um, I, I sort of, my mindset changed a little bit with regards to competition when I sort of um, took up the powerlifting stuff and, and um, I wasn't good at it because I was probably too big um, for, for, the, for the weight, you know, the different weight classes. I was too tall and, and a bit too big for the weight classes to be a benefit. Whereas Gary, my friend, he was a shorter guy, really stocky, and he, um, he just used to smash it in his weight classes. So I did it for a little while. And as I said, it gave me a lot of confidence. And um, a few of my, my friends and I, you know, I had great friends in the footy. And I, I did the footy because, um, one, my whole neighbourhood was playing for the same team. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the old friends that I have. And, uh, you know, early in the piece, it was just something that you did. But then, you know, you start to start playing footy for um, the people around you, you know. So when you got into the older age groups, you, you, wanted to, you wanted to do well for your team. And there was a real, not only were we um, a, a footy team, but we were neighbours, you know. We were in the same street and we were in the same area and we used to hang out. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like a country town in, in, in our suburb of Wembley Downs, you know. So it was a really... It was a really good feeling, and I think anyone that's been involved in in those uh, team sports like that and and has done well and and had good people around you, then I think in some ways that's a lot more enjoyable than your personal successes. So um, yeah, it was. It's just, and you know, those guys. A lot of those guys are still good friends of mine today. And you talk a little bit about powerlifting. I, I had no idea that you did this. So are you actually going to competitions to compete in powerlifting? I went to one um, and I realised I was not very good. So, um, yeah, as I said, I was just too big and I, I um, you know, I just wasn't strong enough for, for that particular size person. So, um, but I, I just enjoyed that training. It gave me a routine and it, it actually gave me a, um, something, something to think about, you know, and it's, it's probably benefited me in the future now, you know, I'm not, I'm not big on weights now, but um, uh, just that regime of training and, and, you know, I wasn't introduced to that. I wasn't a swimmer or anything like a lot of the, like probably you were, or a lot of the other kids around me were, you know, they were swimming five times up to 10 times a week and 
and those sorts of training sessions. And I, um, I didn't really have any training sessions. I did my powerlifting. This is when I was about 13, 14. I did my powerlifting on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays and my footy training on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So that was my weekly regime. So then on the weekends, we played footy and, and um, went surfing. So, but that was only up till I was 16. I jumped on my first boat when I was 16. So I left school early. I always knew that I was going to be uh, involved in something at sea. I didn't know what it was, but it was just a feeling that I always had that I was going to be on a ship or a boat of some sort. And um, I knew that was going to happen. I don't know why, but it, it, it sort of eventuated like that. And I went to a maritime college when I was 15 for a year and then jumped on my first fishing boat when I was 16 in February when I was 16 and um, took off up to the Gulf of Carpentaria. So it was, um, it was, you know, it was very interesting. It was kind of a, a great adventure for me. And so you're 16, you, you don't, so you wouldn't have finished school. You would actually left school like early, like a lot of, I guess your generation did. You either sort of got a trade or you basically, I guess your trade was going on the boats. Um, what was the experience like being on the boats and I guess going away from that little bit of a routine that you were talking about with the training and, and playing the footy on the weekends? What was it like, obviously, just throwing your hat in the ring and doing something completely different, even though it's something that you knew you wanted to do? Was it, was it, was it a good experience, a bad experience? I know you spent like a, probably a year up there on that boat. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm sort of what, someone that always likes to see the, see the mountain and, and then work out, try and work out what's on the other side. You know, I, I'm very interested in that sort of stuff. So um, this, this thing, you know, going to that, to that region, to such a remote area and, you know, being, you know, I guess pretty young at the time and um, having that experience, you know, stuck with me. You know, I'm not saying it was easy. It was actually really tough. You know, the work was tough. Um, the people were tough. Uh, There's a lot of, a lot of people up there that were hiding from something, you know. So, um, you know, I met some very interesting characters. But in saying that, it, it sort of gave me a, um, a, 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 I don't know, it gave me a whole bunch of uh, skills, I guess, with, with um, people that sometimes aren't, aren't normal, you know. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, amazing, amazing, you know, to, to be able to experience... Um, the Gulf of Carpentaria in 19, I think I was up there in 1981. Um, you know, it was still a very remote place and, and to go ashore on Groot Island and, and you know, go to the pub there and, and see the different people and the, uh, the stuff that's going on. And it was just a, an amazing experience. And then after that, I moved, I did one season up there, then moved back down to Exmouth where it was probably a little bit, more life friendly, you know, I played footy there and I could surf there. And uh, even though the work was still hard, we weren't going out for long periods at a time. Whereas in the Gulf Cup and Terry, I was out there, you're on the boat, that was it. So we unloaded to motherships. We went ashore, I think in about six or seven months, I think we went ashore twice. So, um, so you, you would know, have got used to the sway of the boat, that's for sure. And where's the Gulf and Carpentaria? Um, gee, your geography is pretty bad. It's that big square thing that sits between Queensland and the Northern Territory. Ah, there you go. <laughs> See, well, I'm I'm probably not the only one thinking this right now. So I'm I'm just letting the viewers, you know, understand where you were because I was thinking it was up like northwest. I actually had no idea where you're talking. Yeah, about. no. So it's um. So I I we took the boat from Fremantle, and when we left Fremantle, I we went straight into a cyclone. So it was my initiation 
uh, into the the life of a of a of a seaman, if you like. Um, I was 16 years old. I'm on a 75 foot steel trawler, and we're straight into the guts of a cyclone. And I spent the next three days throwing up, um, yeah. which I think helped break my seasickness. I think we've talked about this when we did that trip from Bora Bora up to Taha on that boat, yeah. and you were throwing up, and I was giggling my head off, and and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that experience, you know, this seasickness is a, is a very, very nasty thing. And when you're stuck on a boat, the sea, the seas around us were just phenomenally big. Um, and uh, I just remember seeing some dolphins flipping around in the ocean while we're sewing nets on the back of the boat and I'm throwing up every 10 minutes and uh, seeing some dolphins and just wishing I was one of those dolphins, you know, cause they were having fun in the ocean and I was having the worst experience of my life. But, we got through the cyclone and I think that um, that two or three days of that incredibly rough weather, by the time we got through it, we were up, um, we were up off the Montebello Islands, which are well in the northwest of WA. And I remember seeing from a long way out the surf breaking on the Mont Montebello's and I was going, wow, that's crazy. You know, it was massive. It was a really, really big swell. And, and then after that, it was calm all the way from Broome around to um, where we went just this side of Darwin, the, the western side of Darwin. So. And that's where we. That's where I started fishing on that particular journey. And what? And what were you catching on the boat? And what was the experience like? I guess for a young sixteen-year-old, obviously you're getting on the boat with a bunch of men. Was it? Was it a quick learning experience? And it sort of allowed you to mature very fast. Yeah, I, I had always um, hung out with people older than me a lot of the time when I was growing up. So you know, one of Steve. I mentioned Steve Lawrence before. You know, he's a couple of years older than me, and. Um, then there was his brother Chris as well and there was all these guys that I knew that were older than me so I had good experience around sort of older people um, so I, 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 the older people didn't, didn't sort of intimidate me or, or worry me at all it was um, you know it was just the odd nutcase that would, would be a little bit intimidating but um, yeah it was, it was interesting you know so there were you know there were I was probably the youngest up there at that particular time, you know, out of, out of all the boats that worked that region. And um, in some ways I was very fortunate that I started so early because I, I got my maritime qualifications to drive the boats quite early, in fact, as early as you can get them. Uh, so um, that was good too. But um, yeah, you know, it's, um, I'm, I'm not saying it was, um, it definitely wasn't easy. There were times that I, I felt very lonely, you know, so, because they were obviously doing, doing things that I didn't want to do. Um, when we when we had time off and the way it worked is you'd work sort of pretty well 28 days straight and you worked at night except when you're catching uh, the banana prawns which you caught through the day but you work all night and then you'd sleep a bit through the day and then get up and, and go again and then when the full moon rolled around you'd have a, a night or two off because the prawns don't come out when the, when the moon's there because the fish are too prevalent so um, the guys go nuts. <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah, I, can, I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you spend a, a year on that boat and then you head to Exmouth to sort of have a bit more of a, I guess, a mixed bag of life. I guess you, you're going down to Perth and you sort of spend your, your winters in um, Exmouth, which is kind of a perfect scenario, really, because the, ex, the, the Exmouth uh, winters are very, very nice. I've been lucky enough to go up on the, a couple of those Ninga trips that you run. Uh, what was life in Exmouth like? And can you tell us a little bit about Dean, Dean's Canyon? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> Exmouth was, was actually a lot cruisy, you know. So 
at X, in Exmouth, you might go out just for one night, come back in and unload, and then I could just drive out to the surf breaks and go surfing. Um, I was fortunate that the boss of the facility up there at the time loved footy, and we had a we had a fishing footy team called the Demons. So um, I would often get Tuesday nights off because they played night footy up there under lights uh, at Exmouth Oval. Uh, there was one thing good about Exmouth because it was a a US military base at the time, all the facilities were first class. So the oval was the only green patch of, of grass in town and it had lights, we played footy under lights. And, and um, yeah, so he would always give me Tuesday night off. Uh, so I had a weekly night off, which was kind of a, a real luxury in the fishing industry. And um, yeah, so, you know, I could surf through the days. We used to if we did a two day trip, so we'd fish all night, we'd have that day and then we'd fish the next night and come back in and unload. I, used to, I, I was driving the boat by the time I was 19, so I'd take the boat up to the, the Murian Islands, which sit about nine miles off the end of uh, North, Northwest Cape. And there's a, there's a couple of unreal waves there. So um, we used to surf the Murians through the day and then there's other there's other little places that would break occasionally in in at the top of the Gulf as well. So we got to surf a few places while we we're on the boat. Um, yeah, it was very it was really interesting. You know, like um, the, the different sea life that we caught. You know, our our predominant catch was uh, three species of prawns, kings, tigers, and endeavours. Um, but uh, you know, you pretty well catch everything else in the ocean because you've got two big nets one either side of the boat that drag along and the bottom of the ocean and they pull up everything and you knew you knew when you're getting a little bit too close to a reef you'd pick up a whole bunch of craze and um every now and again we'd hit schools of big schools of mulloway you know like 12 15 kilo mulloway and uh yeah it was really it was good and if we weren't surfing on some of those days we'd pull the boat up at a lump and catch a few uh you know uh, red emperor or coral trout and, so I got, I got to experience um, that what any uh, sort of ocean-minded person, you know, I got to experience the whole spectrum, you know, of, of, of that sort of thing. You know, the, the, the rough weather, the, the fishing, the surfing, the, the diving occasionally and, and all the really neat things that come with being out on the sea. And did you find it hard as a young kid? I, I sort of mentioned this before, but... We didn't, you didn't really have iPhones back then. You weren't really connected to your friends and your family back home and you sort of just boosted up there at 16 and then you spent a lot of summers um, in Exmouth as well. What was it like as a, I don't know, a, a kid in the 80s or, or 70s and 80s actually just, just going away from home, going away from the family and you're actually just like sort of jumping into a, a sea of different people and, and different experiences? How did you deal with that at that age? Well, I'd sort of had a bit of a, um, a pedigree with that because my dad did a similar thing with the whaling industry in the 50s, you know. So he went up and became a whaler, you know, in the mid-50s, um, you know, obviously moved away from his family down in Denmark and, and uh, did that. So, you know, it's sort of, it wasn't a difficult thing for me to do. And I always knew I was going to do it. Like, it mm. wasn't like, I, that's one of the reasons I got out of school because I just couldn't handle the, um, I'm, not, I'm not big on you know, those, you know, lifelong routine things. I like to sort of break it up here and there and, and do a whole bunch of different things. So um, school was, was, in the end, it was pretty tough for me. Um, so I knew that I, I had to go and do that. 
and um, you know, I'm so glad I did, you know. So I guess from there I had two two routes. I um could either stay in the in the well, I had a number of routes. I could always stay in the fishing industry and chances are I probably <laughs> I, love, I love you said that right, Dino. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah. I um I could have stayed in the fishing industry and, and I'm not sure where I'd be today. Um, I could have gone to the, to the white boat industry, you know, the, the, the luxury yacht industry and that would have been fun too. But I, I sort of, um, at that particular time, late, late teens, early twenties, I decided to um, take on a more competitive route and I was kind of inspired by some of the life-saving events and, and then the Molokai event sort of, came in the radar. So there wasn't many races around at the time. So the races that were around, you knew all about them because, you know, now that there's events everywhere and, and things, you know, the whole event stuff gets a little bit flooded at times. But uh, back then it was sort of one or two things, you know. So we had the Avon Descent in August and used to do that a bit and the clubby stuff in summer and, and so on. So... But how did you go from, like, you're a kid, you're not really competitive, you don't really care too much about competition. You go away for, I don't know, three, three years or so, you do, you do a lot of stuff on the boats. Um, but how, where, how do you come back and want to be competitive in, like, surf ski racing and probably dabbled in a little bit of Ironman stuff and did those type of events? Like, how did, when, when did that change come about and when did you start to want to do that? Yeah, it was, it was around then. I realised that um, I'd sort of run my course with, with that particular lifestyle of, of fishing, you know, for six to eight months of the year and then, um, and then uh, you know, working as a lifeguard and stuff like that, it, you know, it, um, in the summer. And it, it kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of ran through that and I was like, you know, I'm ready for a change. As I said, I like to change things every now and again. So... Uh, it was the sport that sort of inspired me, and you know, I got I got more mixed up with people like Greg Mickle and and um, and Rick Turner at City of Perth Club, and moved over to that club, and you know, had you know, I've got lifelong friends there, and you know, Muzz and Mickle and Rick and all those boys, and and um, you know, that that sort of being around, I guess, being around people that um, that you know lift you and inspire you makes it easier for you to sort of take that jump so you know Mickle's a great mate of mine and you know you know you know what he's like in the ocean he's he's one of the the best I've seen at, at just about anything in the water so um you know being around Greg and doing the stuff that he was doing was was awesome and at the time we we're very lucky in WA because we had a guy like uh called Ken Diddler and his brothers that were dominant players in the clubby stuff and coming through with me, just a year older than me, was Kelvin Graham. And he, um, he went on to win Olympic medals and Australian Surf Ski Championships and stuff like that. So I was very lucky to have those guys around at the time. And then pushing from behind, you had guys like Dean Beamont and, and Mike Pond and a bunch of other guys that were just as awesome. So we went through a really good phase there in WA of, of, of being, you know, making it easy to get inspired, I guess. So... You mentioned here um, last year, so you, I think you started racing again last year, junior. So that would have been under 18s at the time. Would that be right? Yeah, I think, yeah, seven, you were 17, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you said you got beaten by Kelvin Graham in, in the ski race. Um, what was that? What was that like? So it would have been your first year racing clubbies, and that would have been a state surf ski race? Yeah, so no, that was actually, Kelvin was a year older than me. So he, that was when I was a second year junior. I was still at Florida. So I'd, I'd been fishing. I used to come down in October, November 
and then uh, do the clubby stuff uh, through the summer. And then I managed to squeeze in the state titles and then I'd head back up north. So um, I hadn't been to a national titles then at that point. So that was the second year junior. Kelvin won that. He went on to bigger and better things. Um, he moved to the East Coast. And uh, I did my next year, last year as a junior at, at City of Perth. And I did go to the Nationals that particularly, particular year. And uh, that was down at Clifton Beach in Tassie. So that was my first National Surf Life Saving titles. And that was, uh, I think that was, what was that, 83 or something like that. Okay, so you have, obviously, you're racing to 86, and so now you're 21, you're still doing that sort of back and forth stuff. What were you doing for training at that stage? Because I know training was very different um, back in your day, I guess, uh, when you were youngster. Um, what was training like back then? Were you doing lots of miles? Were you doing lots of paddling? Or was it just like a bit here and there? Like, how seriously were you taking it at, say, 2021? Yeah, it... it uh... You know, it's funny, you think you're taking it seriously, but but probably not. You know, I never used to train on weekends. Uh, so I'd have weekends off because all my friends would go nuts on weekends. So <laughs> I wanted to be around them. And, um, and uh, you know, so I'd train through the week. I, the, the City of Perth program was very swim dominated with Rick. Um, so, which was kind of good because in later life, I used a lot of the stuff that Rick had taught us. I applied that to paddling, so um, that was good. You know, you know, we had good swimmers at, at City of Perth. We were the dominant surf club in, in the West Coast then, and used to do pretty well at nationals. Um, so I would do, I'd still do a lot of my paddling on, on my own, or with with guys that I was sort of training as well. Some of the young boys and stuff like that down at City. We didn't have a huge paddling squad there, but we had sort of five or six people that would regularly turn up. Mark Stewart and um, you know, um, there was the Wheeler brothers and a, a couple of other guys. Greg Naylor was was very prominent then too. And um, yeah, it was good. You know, like it was um, the the stuff that Rick was doing sort of gave me a great sort of base. And I, I wasn't a swimmer, but I used to swim train uh, probably four or five times a week with Rick, and and he was fantastic. So it was a, it was a great experience for me to do that stuff. And then I, you know, later just before I moved to the, to New South Wales, I um, I started developing my own programs based on a lot of the programs Rick had, Rick had set for, you know, two to 400 metre swimmers. So I'd use those sort of same sessions and just apply them to paddling. So at the time, our ski races were always between two and four minutes, which I guess was the same as a 200 and a 400 metre swimmer. So I just um, pretty well tried to train that way. So, uh, and the big thing for me, I, I don't know why, but I always thought that, uh, my, my mindset was that you, you never win a race going out. You always win a race coming in. And so downwind became being able to sort of get really good at that became a, a real focus, you know. So you could always start and get on someone's wash. But if you could dominate the, the run home, then you, you were going to do pretty well. Yeah, well, that's exactly my mentality. I was never the quickest off the beach because most of the time I'd be getting my snorkel out and because everyone would walk out so far and I'd have to jump in from like chest height at least and try and pull myself into my ski. So I was never the quickest off the beach. But I knew if I hit the cans in like, I don't know, 10th or 11th, I'd usually be able to get through because I was always able to catch those runs coming home a little bit better than the rest. And I guess that was like a formulation that uh, you came up with uh, years and years ago. Um, I train. I also trained under Rick. He's a good guy. Uh, did a bit of swimming this year, so I know he's got a great, uh, great pedigree in coaching. And he's still doing it now. He'd probably be actually a good person to get on here. I'm sure he'd have lots of stories. 
Um, but you see, you, you're getting involved more and more in, in clubby racing at this stage. And, and was clubbies quite big at that stage? And were you traveling around a lot to do it? Or was it mainly just racing in, in WA and sort of doing the local carnivals and then going away for Australian tiles once a year? That was it, yeah. That was, that was basically it. So the only time you went away was um, occasionally we'd, we'd go over to the Freshwater Carnival, which was the biggest carnival outside of the Australian titles at the time. Um, and the only other time we went away was the country carnival, which was more of a party than a race. So, uh, down at Denmark or up at Geraldton or, you know, Bunbury, they were always really good fun, those, those country carnivals. So yeah, that, that was about it, you know, so I was just doing the, the clubby stuff and, and yeah, it didn't go away much at all. So, um, and you know, you asked if it was big, like it was obviously big in, in our minds at the time, you know, we thought it was the biggest thing going like anyone that's involved that immerses themselves in something enough thinks that nothing else happens in the world. So, you know, it was probably very, very, very small, but um, at the time for me, it was, it was quite big. So in, in 87, you head over to uh, Santa Cruz and do some lifeguarding over there, I think. And then you're doing, um, you do your first international races over there. What was that experience like as a young fella, obviously getting out and exceeding the world and actually experiencing a lot of different stuff? Uh, you need to interview Greg Mickle and get his side of the story. He has some great stories. Um, no, it was unreal, actually. Like, um, myself and Greg and another mate of mine, Gav Hegney, who's the, the big property guy in WA, he, um, we sort of got together and said, let's go to, to the US. And um, so I made a phone call, rang up um, this guy in Santa Cruz who was the head lifeguard at Santa Cruz and said, oh, you got any jobs? You know, this is in our summer. And uh, he goes, yeah, we can get you on. So I said, okay. So we started doing all the paperwork to try and line up a job in Santa Cruz. And, and then, you know, like a week before we're booked to fly out uh, and go to Santa Cruz, uh, he goes, yeah, it all fell through. You know, the, the government wouldn't allow it to happen. So we, we go to Santa Cruz anyway. And we, we kind of really, we're very, very fortunate because we, um, we ran into some fantastic people. And, um, you know, I... Um, that are still friends of mine today and we stayed we ended up staying at a mate of mine's house uh john slibra um who's really big with the paddle boarding in in uh, santa cruz and um we stayed at his house and we ended up basically living at his house for about three or four months so um his parents and family were just absolutely fantastic and it was just such a neat experience to be able to do that and yeah, we travelled a fair bit while we were there and I, I did a lot of the races there. Mick, uh, Greg and I went down and did this race um, from Monterey to Carmel and that was, I guess that was my first ever international surf ski race and it was called the Kelp Cutter Classic. Started on the beach at Monterey and finished on the beach at Carmel and the whole way you're paddling through, you know, big fields of, um, of kelp and there was lots of surf and it was pretty interesting and uh, you needed a kick-up rudder because... Um, you got caught on a kelp if you didn't have a kick-up rudder on your ski. So, um, yeah, it was, that was my, my first race. And I, later in that, that period of time, I moved down to, to San Diego and hung out with a guy called Keith Keeler. And, and uh, I was living behind a couch at San Diego State University <laughs> and uh, with a bunch of guys there. And, and John, the guy from Santa Cruz, was one of them. And it was, it was just, a, you know, it was the stuff you do when you're, late teen, early 20s and just good fun. Yeah, and what was it like doing your first ski race over there? I know kelp beds are quite interesting to paddle through. I, I paddled through a few in South Africa. 
we didn't have the drop down rudders. Um, how did you go in that race and, and what was it like the whole experience? Like obviously going around having a lot of fun at the time and that was the main focus, but you decided you'd probably go out and do a race as well. But was it something about that race that started to get you thinking more about those longer distance ski paddles? No, it was more, it wasn't, you know, at that particular point, I wasn't really um, thinking too much about what would come after that race. It was just that we saw it come up. I don't know how we knew about it, but we just saw it come up and I got in touch with uh, this guy, Keith Keeler, who owned Vahala Surf Skis down in San Diego. I rang him up and I said, can you bring a ski up for me? And he said, sure, no problems. Um, and, he, you know, he didn't know me from a bar of soap, which was really nice of him because at that particular time I, I hadn't, you know, acquired a, a, a reputation in ski paddling or anything like that. So, and um, yeah, in the race there was this other guy called John, John Weed. I think his name was from, um, he was more of a river paddler, but he and I had a bit of a tussle um, in that race. And I think he got it in the end, um, you know, going into the beach at, uh, at Carmel. So, but you know, it's just a great experience. I wasn't really too fussed about winning or losing. It was just um, an opportunity for us to see a bit more of the US and, and uh, not many people can say they've paddled from Monterey to Carmel either. So good fun. Yeah, no, it would have been very good. I actually don't, I know where Monterey is, but I don't know where Carmel is, but it would have been uh, obviously something different and a good new experience. Were you just paddling clubby skis at that stage or was there, was there a type of ocean ski or not yet? Yeah, no, so Keith had designed his own skis, the Valhalla's, which were um, a cross between a clubby ski and an ocean racing ski. They weren't quite where the, you know, in fact, they're a fair way up where the ocean racing skis are today. They're probably closer to a clubby ski, but um, a little bit quicker and lighter all the same and really, really well made. He made some fantastic stuff. So in fact, my first two Molokai's were done on Valhalla's. Yeah, and then you also win the, the big US surf ski race of that year, the, uh, the Alcatraz event. Um, what was that like? Cause that was, you say that was like the big US race. It was probably like the US surf ski champs, um, what that was a few years ago. Um, what was that experience like to be able to win that? Did that when, did, when did you sort of spark this passion to, I'm trying to find this sort of, point where you're like all right now i'm going to actually try and take this a bit more seriously and do a bit more of this longer distance ocean paddling yeah no i still enjoyed the lifestyle that i had you know of um not being too serious about sport you know and and just doing just doing it for fun and and uh this that, that race in 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 san francisco I, I was i drove up with keith and another guy called philippe bockera who was a french french guy who probably should have won the olympics but he slept in Missed his race in. Oh uh, God! <laughs> they were the K. They were the K two champions. I can't remember which Olympics it was. It might have been Seoul or one of those ones. Where um, no, it would have been before that. It was um, way eighty eight. No, eighty eight would be about right, wouldn't it? It was eighty. Eighty eight was, was Seoul. Yes, yeah. This happened after that. I can't remember anyway. It was somewhere in ninety two was Barcelona. Yeah, yeah. So it was in the eighties. So it must have been eighty eight. Um, no, it must have been the one what was before that, whatever that before was before that. I don't that. know what was before that. I haven't so, got that far back. Philippe and his partner had dominated K two thousand racing all over the all over the world and, and uh were the you know, were the odds on favourite to win, but they 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 slept through the <laughs> they slept through and missed and missed the start of the race or something like that. There so there was some controversy anyway. So Philippe Philippe couldn't race the uh, thousand that particular Olympics either because if you miss one race you can't do the other apparently so oh that's uh, right that is that rule and so anyway Philippe Philippe was um you know it was it was a flat 
pretty well flat water race, but um, I just sat on Philippe's wash for half of it. Then uh, it turned a little bit downwind and managed to scoot away from me on the downwind section. So it was a good experience for me. So you come back me very much because I wouldn't take any leads. <laughs> Doesn't sound like you, Dean. You love the flat water grind. Um, so coming off that trip in the US, you spend a, like a full winter in WA. You're playing AFL. When you say AFL, what what level were you playing? Are uh, you playing like the waffle, or were you playing? Uh, no, so we're playing amateur. What was it? Amateur yeah. footy. So, uh, and I I, was, I played Colts with a team called Mount Lawley, and we won the, the premiership in that. And then um, I moved over to another team called West Coast, which is based at City Beach, or was based at City Beach, and um, uh, played for them. And I played a little bit of A grade with them and, and a bit of F grade. So I was sort of flicking between, because I, I was still going up north. I had sort of intermittent periods of going up north. So um, I wasn't there. I was there most of the winter, but I wasn't there the whole winter. So um, yeah, so, and you know, to, that was good. You know, the level of footy was pretty good in, in A grade amateurs. So um, a lot of guys that had played waffle um, would, would come down and play play in those teams. So, yeah, it was good fun. And then, um, yeah, so I did that, spent that winter and, and then uh, moved to the... Across to Sydney. I moved to Sydney and I remember... The big smoke. I remember being at the Cottesloe Beer Garden on a Sunday session and, and I said to my mate, Mick Anna, um, I'm going to go to Sydney tonight. And he went, yeah, bullshit. So I went home and borrowed <laughs> 300 and... I think it was three hundred and ten dollars off mum for a standby ticket, and and um, jumped on a plane to Sydney. Been here ever yeah, since. Well, so, so was it just a spur of the moment thing, or you actually had a plan to go over there and be, or you just like we just fly out of the wheel sort of stuff? No, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it a lot. You know, um, I, I'd met uh, Steve Wood and, and Tank after yep. the nationals. I think the nationals that that year were at Wanda, and I'd met them and had a good chat, and they said, "Yeah, come on over." and uh, I didn't really think I would and they didn't really think I would and you know I wasn't I wasn't anything special I was just you know probably a, a semi-final paddler at best you know at nationals um, I hadn't made an open final at that particular point and um, yes yeah, so I went over and I had a mate here Mike Kirsten who who was working for the council and I said um, you know when does a lifeguard things open and I applied for a lifeguard job and they said yeah come over so yeah, I'd set a couple of things up, but I wasn't really sure if I was going to do it, you know. So it was just sort of a few glasses of inspiration and and uh, a direction that I took that night, and that was it. Yeah. Oh, that's that's sometimes what you need. You send a bit of a kick up the ass, and you get on with it, you know. Like you're thinking about these things for so long that sometimes they become way bigger than they need to be, and you just go, right, I'm doing it. Let's go. Um, yep. That's sort of the approach I've taken with a lot of things and it's, it's worked out for me. But so you get over there, you spend about eight years doing clubby stuff. Um, you've got like the leeches, the tank band, Steve Wood, you're paddling with all these like great paddlers and, and Ironman guys. What was that whole experience like? Because that was like the, the heyday of the, the Tobies as well. Yeah. So when I first got over, you know, Steve Wood was still living in Sydney at the time. And um, there was Tank, there was Tony Vicelli, there was, and then there was all the Ironman guys. There was a whole host of them. And, um, you know, Rido, Leachy, uh, there was all the guys like um, Sean Kenny and um, John Robinson, and all these guys that were just freaks. And, and um, so whilst a lot of those Ironman guys weren't particularly really, really good paddlers, they were just so fit. So if you trained with them, you knew you, knew you were going to be 
working hard the whole time. So um, we used to have sessions off Manly where we'd have 40 paddlers on the water, you know, doing shark, um, shark net sprints, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, and if, if you're winning those consistently, you knew you were in the money to do well at nationals and that sort of thing. So I sort of always thought that if you surrounded yourself with the best and you got on top of them, you, you were going to be the best. So um, Leachie and I used to do these sessions in Queenscliff Lagoon, which is kind of like a, it's kind of like a gutter really. And yeah. um, uh, I think we could get 2.2 K out. And uh, we used to, Leachie used to live on the lagoon. So we'd go there, paddle easy down to the bridge at Queenscliff beach. And then, we'd do four flat out 2.2s. So you go flat out all the way to the other end and there was shopping trolleys and trees and you'd try and put each other into the sandbank and, and it was just a, a full war and we used to do those things twice a week. And uh, that, that I think, you know, things like that were, were just things that really, really helped you get tough, you know. So, um, and then all the ocean stuff we did and, and um, having such an awesome group around us at the time you know, Manly were, were a pretty dominant club at the time too. We used to win the point score at nationals and stuff like that. So um, it was just a good feeling. And once again, it just came down to surrounding yourself with those really good people. Yeah, and what was it like? Obviously, you're competing with like Leachie, like in sessions, you're competing with all these good Ironman, great paddlers. Like what did your training really change at that point from going like having a bit more fun with it and just going down with your mates and racing? Was it, did it become more structured and more like serious or was it just more of everything yeah so if you've ever if you'd ever been around steve wood you knew that if you um didn't lift your game you'd just get blasted so he was he was just an, an absolute inspiration you know and and um uh you know it, it's such a tragedy that he passed away but um you know to have him in your life and have him around and and the inspiration that he would bring to to the club and to the other competitors was just phenomenal. And I, I was, I was fortunate to have a brief, you know, brief couple of years with him at Manly until he moved up, up to Queensland and then obviously passed away. And, and um, I, I was really lucky that I actually got to experience that because, um, you know, he was one of the guys that sort of said, you know, if you're going to do this, you got to do it properly. And, you know, <laughs> classic stories about Woody, you know, you'd, you'd roll up to train at Manly Dam and he always had to be there first. So he'd be out there 15 minutes before you got there. And no yeah. matter what time you set, you could have gone to two o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, right? <laughs> he'd, he'd be there at one forty-five. you know? Yeah. So he, he just did that sort of stuff. And we used to do these sessions, um, you know, starting at 4.30 in the morning that we wouldn't get off until seven, you know? So um, some of it involved running, a lot of paddling, but it was, it was tough, you know, it was really good. And I, I, I thank, I thank, you know, whoever I have to thank that I had that opportunity to experience that. Yeah. Yeah. So you had that great people really pushing you to that next level and you really took your paddling to the next level. And what sort of results were you seeing through that period? Like, was it mainly freshy carnivals? I know they were quite big. And then you had um, Australian tiles were obviously the main focus. You had like thousands of people turning up. It was quite, quite a big event, but were you kayaking as well? Like what, what sort of results were you seeing in your different sort of paddling sports that were probably a little bit better than what you saw before? Because you sort of weren't taking it too seriously, but now you're sort of like coming into a really serious environment, which is just infectious in a way, because if there's, if there's all these guys around you trying to achieve, you you want to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And the big thing at Manly was to make the Tatman team. So you had to be in that top two and you had to prove week after week. And back then there was carnivals just about every week. So you had to prove week after week that you deserved to be in that Tatman team. So 
you have to get first or second at each carnival, you know, out of the amount of guys to do that. And the amount of guys were winning the carnivals back then anyway. So, um, but yeah, that, that lift, I like from the very first year I moved. So 88, 89 was the carnival at Burley. And <laughs> yeah, anyone in clubbies that was around then will tell you that Burley was probably the, the biggest surf that any carnivals ever had. It was, it was out of control. Um, uh, you know, I made my first final there and then I made the next sort of seven and more well, till 96. So, uh, till I stopped doing it. So made all the finals then and, you know, won a few things here and there and, uh, medal in a single and, and, and stuff. I always sort of finished around fourth or fifth in the single if I, you know, if I was in it. So, but I think that particular year at Burley, I don't think I got out in the final or I, I did get out, but it was, it was well after, I think GK won the, won the, um, won the carnival up there and it was well after he finished. So yeah, uh, it was one of those carnivals, you know, but um, yeah. And it was just, as I said, it was just uh, an awesome experience, but you know, there wasn't the ocean racing then. Um, the only race on the radar was Molokai. Um, the 20 beaches didn't start till 91 or 92. Um, so uh, the Avon descent, I would Leach and I'd go over and do that. Um, and Molokai, they were the only distance races I was really doing at the time. Tahiti started mid-90s. And then other races started popping up all over the world. And you had, obviously, those experiences at Aussies. Did you see how you medalled in the single ski race at Aussies? Yeah, yeah. That? So at Scarborough, um, I think it was 91 or 92. I can't remember. Dean Beamett was third, actually. So it was, it was, pretty, it was pretty good to, you know, be on the same dais as Dean because um, he's a good mate of mine. And, uh, yeah, you know, we, we obviously spend a lot of time on a dice together in the over 50s now, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, good. it's good to, um, you know, it's an awesome experience back then. I, I was taking clubbies probably, you know, very seriously back then. It was sort of my focus. And once again, like I said before, you get caught in these bubbles and, and you actually think, you know, it's everyone in the world's watching you, but you know, it's such a small thing in reality that, um, that uh, you get a little bit carried away with yourself at times. And yeah, I probably got a little bit carried away with myself back then. So. Yeah. Well, don't we all, it's at different stages, but you obviously you were very, very heavily involved in surf. I think, did you ever try and do any of the Toby stuff? Cause I know there was like Toby's like outrigger events or Toby's like ski type events. I think Carla was talking about it a little bit as well. Do you ever get involved in that sort of stuff? I know you probably didn't do the Ironman stuff as much, but there were these other sports events, I guess, or water sports events that people were getting involved with. Yeah, I did a lot of the Ironman stuff. I did like quite a few of the Ironman races. I actually used to do the Ironman races at carnivals too. Um, uh, but, but uh, you know, I, I just didn't have the swimming background that those guys, you know, over, over 800 metres, they would put, you know, 40 seconds to a minute in, into me. So just too much to lose when you transfer that to a faster craft, you know, a paddleboard or a ski. So um, I, I was never going to be competitive in that, but I just loved the racing. I loved the training. It was good. It was good. I, I was always big on cross training as well. So I did a lot of running, um, did some swimming um, and some board paddling and stuff like that. So I, I like to do a whole variety of things, but obviously ski paddling was my focus. Um, and then in the same year I won, I won my first Molokai, which was, uh, 92, uh, uncle Toby's 
put together a team to go to the Molokai Outrigger event. And that included the big names, you know, in, in you know, Clint Robinson, who had won a gold medal at the Olympics, um, Grant Kenny and Trevor Hendy, Dwayne Tyres, all those sort of top Ironman blokes. Marty Kenny was in it. Um, awesome, awesome bunch of people. I was honoured to be in that group. And then we won the, um, the six-man outrigger race in, in Hawaii as well. So I was very fortunate to have won the ski race and the six-man outrigger race in the same year. So it was a you know, honour to be part of that crew, you know. It was just good fun. Yeah, it would have been a great, great crew to be a part of. Lots of superstars and big names in that crew. We'll get to your, we'll get to your individual Molokai victories. But was that the year that um, there was like another kayaking crew that went over as well, like Raman Anderson and a bunch of other guys were over there as well competing against you guys? I think they finished second or third. Yeah, so Outrigger Australia used to have, they had a good team, but they had um, days to get Raman into their team. And I think um, Woody was in their team and... Um, you know, some, some really good paddlers, Brad Kane, Matt Jones, you know, Chris Maynard, all those sorts of guys were in that team. And, um, yeah, so we had, I think they might have got third or something that particularly, particular year. And the Hawaiians actually had all their top paddlers, kayak and surf ski paddlers combined into one team as well, Nalu Kukea and, and Chris Ball and all those boys into the Hawaii canoe and kayak team. So it was sort of a similar idea to get a bunch yeah. of of good individual paddlers and try and form a team out of it. The, the thing with us, so we, we never, re- we didn't really get together until the day of the race, really. Like we did, uh, I think we did a session at Hawaii Kai and, and um, our, our real, um, our real sort of get together was race day. And uh, it was just one of those one in a million things where everyone clicked and uh, yeah, what an amazing experience, you know, fantastic. Yeah, it would be, be some great memories. I'm sure some great after parties as well with lots of, with lots of good fellas and lots of good stories. But um, you do your first Molokai in 89. Uh, you finished 12th. What was that experience like and who, who was winning at that stage? Was it, was it GK was winning at that stage or was it who was actually winning the title? Oscar? Like who was winning those titles at, um, in the yeah, late 80s? So, so that one was won by uh, Oscar. Yep. Oscar won that one. And um, I think. Marshall Rosa might have finished second. I can't remember, but um, it was would have been something like that. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I hadn't got to the point where I was competitive in those events, you know, overly competitive in those events yet. And um, I took the very first year more as a holiday. I was actually going back to the US to spend the winter over there. So mm. it worked out well to go to Hawaii and then I spent the winter in the US again. Um, so yeah, no, it was, it was fantastic. Um, that was my first one. And then it was probably after that that I started to think more and more about doing that stuff more seriously. And was this around the same time that you were doing those international lifeguard challenges over in Hawaii? That started about two years after that. Okay. So it was early and 90s and it went for 10 years. And you went, would, you went, would you go back every year for that? And that was that yeah. sort of the same, around the same time as Molokai? It wasn't initially, so it used to be in September, October, and then they moved it to the week after Molokai. So it worked out really, really well. And that, God, that was that was a blast. That thing, it was, um, it, it was just great fun and and great people from all over the world. And uh, you know, the the team we had sort of was, you had to you had to die to get out of it, pretty much. <laughs> it was um, it was pretty good fun. So what was that? Was that like a, a selected team from the Lifeguard Association or how, how did that whole setup work? 
Yeah, so you had the rules were you had to be a professional lifeguard, um, but obviously for a lot of the um, the countries that are in it, they don't they don't really have professional lifeguard services. You know, like a lot of the Kiwi Kiwis weren't lifeguards, but you know it was sort of um, a bit grey in, in that area. But um, yeah, so you had to be working as a lifeguard, and I was fortunate at the time. Um, and uh, Marty Marty was at the time. Chris, you yeah. know, we had. You know, Chris, I think Chris and Marty did most of them. I think I did all of them. Um, you know, we had a great, you know, Steve Short, you had uh, Heath Collie, all these guys that were really, really good competitors doing it. You know, Craig Shelton. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of really good guys. So, yeah, it must have been a great trip. But we'll go back to Molokai. So, you do your first at 89. And was it something special for you? Um, at your first one or was it just something you, you said you were just going over for a holiday and doing it but was it something that just kept you going back like what was it about the race that made you want to go every year I know it was like one of the only big distance races that you said like like with the Avon or, or basically Molokai they were, they were sort of like two ones and then Tahiti but what was it about Molokai that kept you wanting to go back and eventually obviously starting to train for it to win it yeah well I got a taste of it on, on that first one and and you know, I, I knew that I could ride runs, you know, like I'd, I'd spent, whenever we did a downwind in WA against anyone I knew, I always would come out in front. So I knew that I could do that. So a Molokai style event was, was designed for me, you know, cause I, that's what I love doing the most. I, I tend to do okay at it. So, um, and I had, I, I had good endurance. So I, you know, I just wanted to, to have a really good crack at it, you know, and I never went out with the intention of winning a whole bunch of them. I just went out with the intention of doing the best I could in it. And, um, yeah. you know, there was great people around at the time. Um, you know, obviously Oscar and Herman and, um, you know, Nalu Kukaya and uh, Grant Kenny. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of guys doing it. Ian Rowlings, Brad Kane and Marty and everyone was doing it. All the, all the top guys from Australia were doing it and uh, Clint was doing it. And, yeah, it was good. It was good fun. And you had, um, which, which was the year that Leachy won? You mentioned him before, but he won on that really flat year that he was stoked about. Yeah, so we turn up and it's... 95? No, no, it was um, the year before I won my first one. So it would have been 91. Okay. So we turn up and, you know, I'm, I'm praying for a downwind because I knew I had Leachy in downwind, no problem. <laughs> um, but uh, it's honestly, it's glass. It's as glass as glass can get. You could, you, you know, it's three three thousand feet deep in the middle of the channel. And you could almost see the bottom. Yeah, it was that glass. <laughs> it was sickly glass, and um, yeah. So uh, you know, Leachy was just an animal back then, and he um, he ground ground away and, and won it. And I think Marty got second, and I ended up third. And that was um, that was the year before I won the first one. Yeah, he was telling a very different story. He was very, very happy when he got to the other end. He's just like, I'm going to smash everybody. I can grind better than everyone. He was, just pray he was praying for black glass. <laughs> and he's like, I'm never going back. I'm done. I've won. That's it. I'm done. I'm yeah. going to go down the history books. But um, so you go back, you get third, uh, obviously, to Leachy in uh, 91 and you get third in 90. Um, in 92, what changes that you go, right, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to take this win? Because I've heard a lot of times like, the first, like, first year you go over to play and participate. I heard this from Marty Kenny actually going over to Molokai for my first ever one. And Marty's like, you just go over and have a fun. Just go and participate. Second one you go, you go to try and mix stuff a little bit. And third one you go and try and win. And you sort of got, you got that win on that fourth attempt. Uh, what was it like? And was it, was it anything different in your mindset or your training or your focus to try and win this race this time? 
No, I think, you know, I think it's possible to win it from the start and it's been done before. Uh, not just Leachy's won, um, but, you know, Coop Pretorius has won it from his first, his first, um, first race. And I'm, I'm talking more in the modern times when, it's, when the races have been more competitive too. But um, it, is, it is possible if, and, and it's even more possible now because we get to race each other more. So you get to know what to expect. Um, back then it was the only race. So you didn't know anything about anyone in those races apart from the boys in Australia. You'd, you'd only race them over three minutes. So, um, you know, it was, it was completely different then. So, um, but yeah, Marty's kind of right. It is, it, it is a, a steps, one of those races, that, especially nowadays, it is kind of a few steps because logistically it's, it's a very tough race to do. So there's a whole bunch of ducks that need to line up. <coughs> to make sure that, you know, you're going to get the best result you can. And, you know, you've experienced that well and truly. What, 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 cutting down, cutting down uh, <laughs> frames the night before the race and Dino just sitting there at Outrigger Canuka, just super stressed that no skips were going to turn up. Yeah, so, you know, that, that happens a lot. Your escort boat might not turn up. Your, um, you know, your ski might get to Molokai damaged. Um, there's, there's a million possible things that can go wrong in that race. And then there's the race itself, you know, and any... Any race that takes three and a half hours to do is going to have its own set of challenges as well. So, you know, you, you, you've got to rely on all these different things. And I guess that's the beauty of the sport we do because, you know, if you, if you do another paddling sport that's on the flat water, if you spend enough time, you'll get good at it. With ocean paddling, it's a whole new beast. And it's not just about spending the time. It's about all these other things that come into play. And, and uh, that's why I love the sport so much. And so what was, yeah, but, um, what was different about 92 that you ended up winning and who were you racing yeah. against? Yeah, sorry, I didn't answer that question, but um, that race actually was a headwind. So um, it took me four hours 59 for the win, which when you look at the times now, three, I think Hank holds the record now, 3.11. So almost two hours, two hours longer. It was a headwind, it was a sidewind, it was a tailwind, it was a headwind. It was just swirling around everywhere. At times, uh, you couldn't see 20 metres in front of you because the rain was that heavy. And <laughs> Leachy will tell you, I hope Leachy will tell you, you need to get interview Leachy now as well, as, not, as well as Mikkel and Rick Turner. But Leachy will tell you the story because he, he was on my escort boat. So um, you've got to get that story out of him. I'm sure you've heard it before. But, um, yeah. It was belting down with rain. I just remember looking over my escort boat and um, Leachy has a garbage bag on as, a, as rain protection. And he's just, he's just telling me to hurry up and finish, you know, because he just wanted to get off the water. But yeah. um, that particular year I was racing, um, I think, I think Grant, Grant and Marty were there. I think, you know, the other Australian guys were there. But is, it, is this it here? It looks kind of rainy. No, no, that's a later one. So this is ninety three, ninety four. Uh, okay, it just looks like it's raining in that shot too. I've actually never been to Hawaii and it's been raining. Yeah, like, yeah. Keep, I think that's keep just going. The vision. Keep going yeah. with that uh, ninety two story. Yeah. So uh, gee, I'm handsome, aren't I? Look at that. <laughs> yeah, you are handsome. What happened? <laughs> Look at those glasses. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, it started out. It was all over the place, and and. Now, Luke Kukaya and I had sort of uh, broken away from the other guys. So I think in a rainstorm, they didn't see us and we, went, we got away. One of those sorts of things where we, we must have hid behind rain or something and we got away together and, and we just had a, 
a head-to-head battle the whole way. And and uh, I think I think it would have been a different story had he not been there because I sort of just went with him. Yeah. And uh, he he's an absolutely amazing paddler, and I wish. He developed shoulder injuries, you know, a couple of years after that and, and it held him back a lot. But I wish that he had had the opportunity to, to really develop because he was definitely one of the local boys that could have taken this race out. So did, did it make you go faster when you just wore dickies and, and no shirt? And then <laughs> was it more that's, aerodynamic? That's what you did back then. Um, is that uh, is you again? That is me, yeah. You look more handsome in the last shot. What happened? <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, yeah, that's what we did. Like, everyone was like that. I, you know, Marty, Grant, myself, were all, all paddling in sluggos. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty, pretty funny. You'd be burnt to a crisp, you know, at the party after. And yeah, people would come and pat you on the back. And you're like, oh. And then and now I remember waking up, waking up the next morning and just not being able to get out of the sheets because you're attached to them. You know, everything's sort of yeah, just out of your body. Yeah. And, uh, well, they were the same experiences I think I had when I was doing um, Aussie titles. I think you used to just finish that week and you'd just be cooked. Like everything would just hurt and just like yeah. after surf carnivals. And I'm sure it was the same experience. Now, if I did Molokai and full long sleeves, I'm trying to not get burnt, but my whole neck always just gets cooked. Yeah, well, I used to love those. Um, those uh, The following day, we'd always go to the Outrigger Club and you know, you'd sit under the shade there of the, um, of the tree and just have a fantastic afternoon. So you didn't have to get back out in the sun again. So that was always good after those events. And what was it like for you winning 92 for the first time? Was it just something really special? Because you'd had a lot of greats, I guess, like someone like GK, you'd had Leachy win it, you'd had um, Oscar win it, um, and a few other guys. What was it like to sort of put your name up there with those? Because it was like, it was the Distance Failing World Championships. Yeah, I, I didn't really think about it too much like that. I um, At that particular time, I was just... You know, I was I'd gotten more competitive, and I was just interested in 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 trying to win everything, really. You know, so at that at that time, it was just it was just another race on the program. Um, but the, definitely the races I wanted to do. But it was kind of different to win that first one because that was more of a war of attrition. You know, it was just a an absolute slog fest, and and um, you know, uh, racing against Nalu in that particular one, and I just remember, you know, we were just wrecked at the end of that that event, both of us. And um, yeah, it was it was kind of a different race. You know, it's a lot different to when you win a race like that that takes you under three and a half hours, and it's been ripping downwind the whole way. You know, over the like the last two Molokais have been, and you definitely come off the water with a with a different feeling. That's for sure. And was that, that race was just coming into like, well, kind of, just kind of brewing co now, but that, that's where you were finishing those races in the 90s? Yeah, yeah. So we used to finish at Coco, at, at Coco Marina uh, the whole time. So right up until I think the very late 90s, maybe even the 2000s, it was, uh, I think I only finished races where I won um, on the other side of town centre, uh, twice, I think the rest of them all finished at Coco Head. And what was the what was the year Leachy was telling me about where you actually went all the way to Waikiki? Yeah, Did I didn't one? actually. I didn't actually do that race. That's another story. You got to talk to Selzy about that one. Um, <laughs> but uh, I actually Selzy's fortieth was the night before on on the North Shore of Oahu. So I went out there to a, to a party and I I finished up there really late 
and maybe about two o'clock, stayed out there, grabbed Celsi's car, drove to the airport, flew flew to Molokai. <laughs> As you can imagine, we started with a softball, a baseball game at 11 o'clock the morning before and yep. um, <laughs> flew to Molokai, flew over and I could see silver patches on the water. Yeah. I got to Molokai, had my big black coffee at Molokai Airport, got a ride out to um, Kaluakoi, uh, saw Lewis, Lewis Laughlin, who ended up winning it that day. And I said, you're going to win it today because no one, no one can grind better than Lewis in, you know, in, in 40 degrees and dead flat. Yeah. Uh, apart from Hank McGregor, I reckon. And uh, I said, Lewis, you're going you're gonna to win today. Gave him a hug. Bob, Bob Coelho was there with the Black Pearl, the boat. I jumped on it. We drove back to Oahu. <laughs> Got back in 40 minutes to Oahu. Uh, fastest Molokai I've done. And yeah. um, I drove back out the North Shore, had a sleep, and then went to the party. That was, <laughs> what, that was my Molokai experience. <laughs> uh, you're quite renowned for that as well, like actually getting over there and going, I'm not racing, this not windy. Um, and that's probably where it came from. But what year was that? Um, I'm not sure. So there was, there was two years. It was one of the years that Lewis won. It was the first year that he won. And I'm not sure, it must have been 2007, it might have been, or something like that. But if that, one, that one finished at, at um, you know, San Susi there, you know, like at, at Outrigger Canoe Club. Yeah. And I think, I can't remember, but it took them like six hours or something. You know, they were just, it was a struggle, absolute battle. It would have been a pretty exciting party afterwards, that's for sure. <laughs> it was for me. Yeah, I bet it was. You were fresh. You know, just you just rested and recovered. You just took a little bit of a plane flight in between. Yeah, so you was, go back. So you got you win your first in '92. You go back '93, '94, and you and you have two more wins, and you go three in a row. What was what was that experience like? And you sort of establishing dominance over this race in this period. Yeah, it was sort of. Um, yeah, it was good because we had. I think the next two years were good downwind, and '94 um, I broke. The record, uh, I think the record was at 27, 327. I brought it down to 324. Um, and uh, yeah, had a, had a really good race. And I think that was the vision that you saw that you had up before. I'm pretty sure that was um, that, that particular year. So I was yep. racing on a Burton ski, which was kind of like a modified clubby ski. Um, slightly lighter at about 15 and a half, 16 kilos and and he added a little bit more waterline to the nose. So that was, it was a great ski. It surfed really, really well. And in those conditions, um, you know, you could be on, you can be on uh, anything as long as you're catching the runs. So that's the ski you're talking about. Yeah, that's it. There had sort of that hook nose at the front and uh, it was, it was the same length as the, uh, as a normal clubby ski, except for a bit of drop down in the nose. So, so was the idea back then not to use any leg drive as well? Because I see you see how high your knees are on that boat. We like was it mainly like a lot of arm, more arm paddling back then, or was it you were still using a lot of legs? Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. I think I used leg drive, but um, maybe not. I just um, yeah, I, my de- knees do look really high, don't they? It was yeah, just, it was just the way we paddled back then. I think I think if you look at a lot of the guys back then, you'll see that their knees are high. So, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, when you look at, yeah, when you look at all those old, old vision, even in clubby races of guys racing, their, their knees are generally higher than they are now. Yeah. And what was it like, um, 
obviously chasing these better times because was 324 the record that you held until Corey broke it two years ago? No, so I broke it again in, in 97. Um, so that year that I broke it, I went in 94, I went head to head with Clint Robinson across the channel and, and that sort of was probably one of the reasons because we raced really hard. Yeah. And then in 97, I did the same thing with Herman Chalupski. So um, I think not only the conditions, but also the fact that you've got, you know, kind of like the Hank Corey situation right now, you're going you're gonna to push each other to better results. So that's what it was like back then as well. So you went, you beat you beat Clint in '93. Did he did he race in '92 as well or not? No, I don't think so. So '94 was um, I think. Um, oh, he wouldn't have because the Olympics would have been '92. That's where he got the the gold. Yeah, yeah, and then we did the outrigger race later that year. Yeah, and yeah. what was it like racing Clint in his prime? Oh, you know, obviously Clint, Clint's an amazing athlete. So if you know if you can even come in a whisper within a whisper of Clint, it, it's quite an achievement. So um, you know. But you know you don't. This is the sort. This is why I love these racing in these conditions because the other competitors don't matter. Yeah. You know, they, well they kind of do. You know, they they'll make you push over that that little run that you might not necessarily push over. But um, it's about the conditions and about getting the best out of the conditions. And and you don't make mistakes when you when you've got someone like Clint Robinson and Herman Chalupski and Oscar Chalupski and Grant or whoever next year. Because if you make a mistake, you're going to be one run behind. So you really switch on, you know. So you can afford to make mistakes if you're you're in a race that's not so competitive. Yeah. But um, you can't really afford to make hugging mistakes. these rocks here. Yeah. Yeah. So and what and like you have Clint. Obviously, you're racing him in his prime, and you're having obviously these jewels. Was he an intimidating figure back then, or was it just it was just another one of the guys? Because you would have had so many of these guys. I guess that we look back at and go, oh, they were the big names of the sport, but you were, they were just like another competitor for you maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, this was my thing, you know, Clint's thing was, was thousand meter kayak racing. You know, I yep. looked at this as my thing and I, I wanted to own this now, you know, I was at a point in my life where I wanted to own this sport. So, uh, you know, Clint can have his thousand meter kayak race. I'll yep. give him that. <laughs> but I want, I wanted to own this, you know, so yeah. Um, you know, and, and Clint was also very, very dominant in the surf lifesaving races. I, for me personally, I think what he did in, in 13 Australian surf ski titles is bigger than his Olympic gold, you know, in my own mind. So to be able to get through all those rounds, different people over such an extended period of time, because he didn't win them all in a row. So it's probably stretched out for 15, 16, 17 years of, of absolute dominance. So, um, there's not many people in the world that you can talk about that have such an extended period of dom dominance, you know, in, yeah. in an event. Yeah. And it's quite, I guess it's quite incredible to be able to do what he did. And uh, it's quite incredible to you were able to win nine Molokai's over that extended period as well, because you won your first in 92 and I think you won your last in 2002. Um, so it's like a 10, a 10 year period where you've won nine Molokai's, which is quite, quite incredible. Um, so, but now you're talking about, dominating in a sport you're talking about I, this was my thing and i wanted to dominate when did that start this is what i was trying to find before when did you start yeah, going, yeah. so it was about, this, is, this is me it was about then it, you know it, it it you've been through the same i've actually seen you go through it i've seen Corey go through it you have those um those initial periods where you need to get the confidence you need to get that first victory and i think 
I think that's right where Tommy Norton and Josh Fenn are at right now. You know, Tommy Norton's starting to win races. And uh, I remember having a conversation with Tom last year and he said, I'm there, but I just can't win them. And, and now he's winning them, you know. So you, you learn to win, right? So yeah. you, um, you, as, as I said before, you can, you can be the, the best guy at, at, at something, but if you can't win, you can't win. So you've got yeah. to learn to win. And, and um, that's just something that, that develops. And there's a, there's a ton of guys out there that are amazing athletes and, and sports people and paddlers or whatever, but they can't win. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like winning is such a different element and I guess a different mentality as well. You have to go out there and you have to take it and you have to make sure that you're beating all these other great athletes because they're all really good, but it's just like, who can hurt themselves the most or who can make it happen when it counts? Because there's a lot of uh, Wednesday night uh, training champions and there's a lot of guys who actually can turn up on the day and make it count. So yes, it's about mixing up that mentality and making sure you have it. And obviously you've had it and you probably still have it there, but it's just your body's probably not doing what the mind wants it to do these days. But um, so you win 93, uh, you're racing Robbo. Um, 94, is it, is it the same? No, Robbo, Robbo was 94. So 93, I was... Um... I can't remember who was in the race, but I think it might have been Grant and um, Herman. Was well, Herman might have been second, Grant third. Yeah. Um, the next year was uh, I think um, Clint second, and maybe Grant third again, or Marty third. So yeah, and then it sort of went like that for a few years. You know, I, I think Oscar and Herman won in '95. Is that the year they drew? Maybe. Yeah, um, could be. Yeah. And then. Um, so that was a that was a kind of a flatter year. Uh, I actually pulled out that year, um, and then um, not because it was flat. I was actually keen to race, but um, I don't know. <laughs> You've got that reputation. I'd sort of developed a, an issue with my left shoulder at that particular time, which came came into play again later as well. But um, yeah, then I think ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine. I won those next four in a row. So in 95, you also raced the Finlandia event. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I've heard some great stories from this, just from you personally. But can you, can you let us in a little bit of um, information on that one? So in 95, Finlandia Vodka um, wanted to do something big in the US. So they got hold of, of the, well, their distribu distribution company in the US got hold of uh, a marketing company. And they said, let's do this clean water thing and how, how do we do this clean water thing? Well, why don't we get a bunch of people to paddle from Chicago to New York? So they put this race on, they'd already run it the year before, sorry, in 94, but it was only open to the US people. So you had to be a US citizen. So they said, let's put this race on. Uh, we'll invite paddlers from all over the world to do this race from Chicago to New York. So it was a 30 day race. Um, and it took in, you know, the Great Lakes, you know, Lake Michigan. Um, those other, I've forgotten what the other lakes are, but um, Lake Michigan is the only one I know. So don't, talk, don't you can't have a knock at me about geography and not you not be able to name. No, no, Lake, Lake, Lake Erie, um, a few Detroit River, uh, the the Erie Canal, which you know, and then the Hudson River. So you ended up paddling into New York, and we finished under the World Trade Center. So it was yep. a 30 day race. I was there, um, Greg Barton, you know, who, uh, phenomenal athlete, probably one of the best paddlers, you know, when it comes to pure paddling that I know. Um, 
he was there. He was sort of going to be my, my competition for that race. The first day started out with a ripping downwind, you know, across Lake Michigan. So I managed to get a bit of time up on Greg. And I think over the 40 da uh, 30 days, I think I might have won three or four more stages. But, you know, it was predominantly flat water racing and, and Greg, Greg was the man to beat, you know. So occasionally I could go with him. Well, actually, most of the time I could go with him, but occasionally he would drop me. And I remember in the Erie Canal, which was at, at parts, was only 50 metres wide and had turns in it. It's, you know, it's got locks in it. You had to run around the locks. And um, we spent 10 days in that canal racing, you know, 50K a day. And um, I'd fall off Greg's first wash and be on his second wash. And then I'd fall off that. And it's amazing how much benefit you can get from the third wash in a K1 once you... <laughs> Once you tune yourself into it. Yeah. If Greg would see me on that wash and you're slightly off to the side, so he'd go closer to the bank so the wash would disperse against the bank. Yeah. So, you know, he, he um, it was a very smart racer as well. So eventually you'd fall back. And there was a pack of, of guys, four or five guys, sort of that would always be in the pack kind of behind us. And uh, sometimes I'd fall back to them. And even working in a group of four or five, we couldn't catch back up to Greg. So, yeah, he was a beast. And that, that race we... Um, so you'd go from town to town, obviously starting in big cities like Chicago and finishing another one like like uh, New York, but you had Cleveland on the way and you had all these small towns. You'd go from one town and all the windows are boarded up and there's you know a couple of hookers on the corner and stuff like that. And then the next town would be, a you know, only 50k up the road would be a, a vibrant university town, really nice. And it was just such a unique experience. Occasionally we'd get we'd get uh, billeted out with families and I spent a lot of most, I billeted most of the time with Joe Glickman, who was another great person involved in paddling that passed away. Um, and so, you know, we had some laughs, but the, the beauty of, of getting billeted with Joe because, um, because I was so buggered from racing all the time, Joe did all the talking. So it was perfect. Yeah. He was a great guy and it was obviously a great race. Can you tell us that your favorite song that you sang in, in the race? Ah, oh, there's a song that um, we used to sing in the race, but it's it's not that good, so I won't. I won't. Okay, fair enough. Um, so you go back. Obviously, you had the Finlandia. Did you win the Finlandia, or was it just you? It was just a no. Finlandia. Greg, Greg won. He um, he was just way too strong for me. So um, in the race, you're allowed to have one grace day. So of the 29 days of racing, you're allowed to take a day off. So we um, we'd saved up our our grace day till the very last day. So on the 30th day, which was the run from, um, run from um, down the Hudson River, finishing at the George Washington Bridge, we, myself, um, Greg Barton and Colin Simpkins from South Africa, and I think Brett Worth, who was the Australian, really good Australian marathon kite paddler, we hired a boat and ended up having beers and laughing at everyone else in the race, you know, because we, we could use our grace day up. So, um, yeah, so that was that was pretty good fun. Yeah, and then you go back to um, to, to Molokai again, ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight. You get over your shoulder injury. Well, how did you get your shoulder injury? And have you had many injuries over your career? Because I know you've got a few niggles still. Yeah, so my shoulder, um, I I have issues with it because I'm not a I. I've never really been big on you know, um, all those sorts of little technical things. So I um, uh, when it's a, a side chop, I tend to my left shoulder tends to sort of just get really weak from, I guess it's from that lean or whatever it is. It's um, 
just gets niggly. So I, um, I had issues with that and occasionally it'll flare up. Sometimes I can get through it if I just change the way I'm sitting or, but, but sometimes it just gets really bad. And, and I did the Finlandia the next year. So that was 96. I'd won, I'd already done Molokai that year and it was a downwind race. So I had no problems with my shoulder, but I did Molo, I did the Finlandia and I had to pull out on the third day. So, um, which was pretty disappointing, but given it was a uh, vodka company sponsoring it, I had a month of, um, of vodka parties. So I was representing the social side of the paddling. Yeah. Oh, it sounds good, mate. I'm sure, I'm sure you had plenty of good times doing that and actually just being able to not only spend one day laughing at everybody else, you spend 28 days laughing at everybody else. I'm it was sure a wonderful could've... experience. Yeah, I bet it would have been. <laughs> um, and actually Lee McGregor won that one. That's, so that's Hank's dad. Yeah, Hank, Hank's dad and Greg Barton went neck and neck in that one, and, and Lee was just a beast in that race. And the month before, he'd actually paddled the whole course backwards, not backwards on his boat, but paddled up to Chicago from New York. So he knew every inch of that course. Yeah, oh, geez, that that would have been fun, obviously. How how long was the race? How many kilometers? I don't know, but I know that you know we had days that were in the sixties, so. And I think our shortest days would have been in the high 20s. So I know the Erie Canal days were, they were really tough days. You know, they were 10 days on the Erie Canal from Buffalo all the way down to Albany, I think, which is on the top of the Hudson River. And, uh, you know, the only, the only really good thing about the Erie Canal was that you could get out every now and again to run around a lock. So, you know, if that's, if that's your highlight of your day, running around a lock, you know, it's tough. <laughs> so. were, you, were you paddling kayaks or surf skis? No, K1. So I was using uh, a K1 in that. And I, you're allowed to have two or three boats for this particular race. So I ski for the open water. And the open water was lake water, but those lakes can definitely get good downwind. Yeah. And the other thing that sort of affected me in that race a fair bit was two of the, two of the stages were cancelled and they were ripping downwind on Lake Erie. It was actually quite big. Um, and surprisingly good, you know, even though it's fresh water. And um, yeah, so I, I missed two really good days of downwind. I, I don't think it would have been enough. I would have got enough time out of that to beat Greg, but I, I definitely would have been more competitive. Yeah, and I know you haven't. I know you haven't had too much love for kayaking over your time, but you obviously were paddling a kayak in that race. Um, what was it about surf ski compared to kayaks that you enjoyed more? Because I know you spent a li- you did a li- maybe a little bit of kayaking just for training and different stuff, but you never really got involved in it too much. Or did you actually start to, to race in it as well? Yeah, no, I actually did. I, um, I, when they opened the, the N-Swiss thing up here in Sydney, I was one of the, the people that went into that. Um, I did a kayak nationals down in, in South Australia, um, but I, I just didn't like the sport. You know, it was, um, for me, there was, it's it's not what what I'm about, you know. I, I, I like being on the ocean, and um, it's it's funny. I live right on Narrabeen Lake right now, and uh, I struggle to get on Narrabeen Lake. And uh, <laughs> it's a real, it's right there. I can walk to it from here, but yeah. um, it's a real effort for me to to get out on the lake and and do that. It's just um, you know, it's everyone has their thing. For me, it's yeah. ocean, and um, you know, um, there's people that love paddling on the flat and. I think they're weirdos, but they love doing it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I actually quite like paddling on the flat when it's a nice, crystal clear morning. Like we had one up morning the other day, and it was just awesome. It was just like dead flat. You know how like we went over to Brown Street, and there's Optus Stadium there, and it's just like glassy. And you can see the stadium in the water. You're paddling along. You can see the clouds. And it's just fantastic. But 
I guess it's not for everyone. One yeah. thing I did want to ask is where did the head lean come from? I have no idea. Um, like, was that something that you had like all the way through your paddling career, like through surf skis and ocean skis and um, obviously in these different races or was it just something that just popped up? Cause it didn't seem like you really had one in, in like those, that footage of 93, 94. Yeah, no, I've always had it. I, I know, you know, this might sound really weird, but when I very started, very first started paddling, the mornings in Perth usually are ripping easterly. So an offshore mm. wind. So I used to get on at Floriate beach and I'd paddle up to Swanbourne or up to city beach. So the wind was coming this way. So I don't know if that caused it or not, but, but uh, that, you know, I don't know what it's from, to be quite honest. It might be that one shoulder's bigger than the other or something. There's probably a, probably a, um, a whole range of different things that probably caused it. But I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, well, it hasn't really slowed you down too much. So going to going to late 90s, 96 to, to 2002, you basically win every year except for 2000. Um, what it was like to have a, a dominance over that period of sort of seven years again. So you sort of have that sort of 10 year period of wins and you have like two years where you don't win or you've had to pull out 95 and you don't win in 2000. Did you race in 2000 or did you pull out? Yeah, I did. I, um, so in 2000, I can't remember what happened. Uh, I actually can't even remember the race to be quite honest. So yeah. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I was. I'm pretty sure I raced. I'm pretty sure I raced all the way up till the mid, you know, to like 2005 or something like that. So, um, yeah, I can't remember the 2000 race at all. And in 2002, when you had your last win, did you know that would be your last win? Because that's something that's always, I guess, I always think about. It's like, okay, so I might go into this season now and not win anything. So, did you? Well, you might have won other races, obviously, but not not another Molokai. Like, did you? Was that something you knew, or you just? No, not at all. I um, I, I it was around two thousand. You know, I'd started, I'd started. Um, everything happened in two thousand and one for me. I um, I joined the Fireys. I started ocean paddling. You know, the ocean paddling, the ocean paddler business. Um, you know, I, I met Shireen. You know, we've been together ever since, and um, a whole range of things happened in two thousand and one, and and. I, I wanted to see this whole thing go forward, right? So I, I started putting my energy into into all the other things. In fact, it probably started a little bit earlier than that. I, I you know, I was at a point in my life where you need things, right? So you, you can't just be a paddler that lives on twenty thousand dollars a year, you know. So I um I became more proactive in work. I was driving charter boats more. I was I had the phone business with Leachy. Um, that finished in 2001 and then I joined the Fireys and started the ocean paddler business, started bringing fans in. So all these sort of things were happening. So it wasn't that I didn't want to, that I knew I was going to stop racing. It just sort of happened that racing became second or third in the priority list. So um, my, my big goal from 2002 onwards was to, to really grow um, the sport in Australia and make it uh, really big. And I, I, um, I really wanted that to happen and, and um, grow my business alongside of it and also set up a lifestyle because um, I was now, you know, with Shireen, we were, you know, we were going to, you know, obviously get married at some point and stuff like that. So, um, and just set up a life like normal people have, you know, I was 35 and it was, uh, it was, it was time to sort of change, you know, so a little bit on, on the way I thought, you know, uh, prior up till then it was all about, about me. You know, so 
uh, it had to become about not just about me, but about the sport, about my family, about my work, all these other things. So racing just dropped way back down the list. So, and yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a purpose thing. It was just the way it was. Yeah, obviously, like being 35, you, you win your first one at 26, I think, and then you, you win your last at 35. It's sort of not a bad run. And I guess that's a, a probably for your time was quite old being an athlete at that age as well. Like you're actually still chasing things around. And a lot of guys I know back in that era were really quitting in like the early, like the early to late 20s, really. That was sort of like the end of their careers and they were moving on. So you come back and you sort of take that sort of competitive energy into your business. You fly back from South Africa, I believe, with three fans, and that's your first start of um ocean paddling really in australia can you tell us a little bit about that story yeah so i went over there um i did a race that nigel reynolds uh who was a great guy from south africa had organized it was called the king of the harbor it went from hout bay down to um down to the harbor area in in cape town and keith fenn gave me a ski to use and he said you know he just said keep it um i said well can't keep it here i gotta take it home so I ended up buying two other fans and they were the fan millenniums back then. And I, I, I um, did the race and took them on a plane with me back home. Back then we used to fly with our skis everywhere. So kind of a little bit weird to actually think about that now, but um, yeah. everywhere we went, we'd fly with our skis. And fortunately they let me put three on in, in Cape Town. And I arrived at Sydney airport with three skis and uh, in one piece. Yeah. Everything was in one piece. Um, so yeah, so that was the start. I sold that, sold two of them, kept one, and um, and then I think you know I I did my first container of, of skis not long after that. You know maybe twenty skis or something like that. So yeah, and that was the start of uh, Ocean Paddler in Australia. And what was the and what was the business like back then? Like you would have had a lot of obviously surf life saving and you kayaking, and it was like obviously that sport was like the big one in Australia. All those two sports were really the big paddling sports. But then you've sort of really invested a lot of time money and effort to start to build um ocean paddling in australia what was it like running your first events when did you start doing that yeah so we hooked up with uh, men's health magazine uh very early in the piece and and so that was in 2002 and initially uh sydney harbour kayaks and men's health magazine had run a race from the spit bridge to finish at um fish markets and New South Wales Maritime were very involved. Sydney Harbour Foreshore Authority were very involved. And there was a, they wanted to plan this week around these ocean events and harbour events to, to highlight Sydney Harbour, which is an amazing body of water. And so that was kind of the start of it. And then Men's Health got involved as a sponsor and, and through them we, we got Land Rover involved. And there, you know, there wasn't a lot of money in it. And it, it, um, it was just the exposure that it was getting. And, and so our first event was held at Balmoral Beach uh, in 2002. And we ran a series that year. And then we ran the Men's Health Series, I think, for the next five or six years. Um, and that was the Australian Ocean Racing Series. And we had events. And that's you know when I started the doctor at the same time. And so, um, yeah, that's how it all sort of kicked off. And we're very fortunate to have the support of uh, Men's Health Magazine at the time. And, and um and, and those guys and then they sort of dropped out of the picture early like 2007 maybe 2008 2009 somewhere around there and then it sort of fell onto our shoulders to sort of fund it by then but fortunately for me at the time the um you know the the 
the sales side of, of bringing ocean racing skis in and selling them to people and growing and the uh, man, you know, Fenn had produced a, um, a more stable version, the XT, and that was bringing tons of people into the sport. So initially I always thought that the paddlers in these events would come from clubbies or kayaking, but in the end it, it, they came from, you know, off the street, you know. So um, it was just uh, guys would see people paddling and then that would help grow it and, and they go, can I try a ski? And they realised they could sit in it because there was always that perception that you had to be in a surf club to paddle a ski and they were very tippy. But once the, the XT came out and the stuff, you know, people could realise they could sit on these things, then uh, the sport blossomed. Yeah, and obviously it all sort of goes part and parcel. You sort of have a fingers in a few different pies and I guess it's something that I've, I've looked up to with you because you're quite entrepreneurial. But did you have much event running experience before you started these men's health events? Like I know Jeremy was, was talking about that's they're the first events he got involved with when he was down there and he was paddling with you and you were sort of really pushing that scene down in Sydney, but you used to paddle around the heads and that sort of thing. But did you have much event experience before that or was it just something that just came naturally with you because you were so used to being an athlete and sort of trying to involve partners and involve um, people into your life to help you, uh, help you reach your goals? Then when you started to run events, like you say, you're doing some events with Leachy and Scott Wood and those guys, was that your first experience of event running? Yeah, so mid-90s, we ran um, the Palm de Pines and the King of the Harbour in, in uh, Sydney. And that was, that was only brought about because I wasn't happy with the way that the 20 beaches had started by then. I wasn't, I wasn't happy with the way that was being run. And, um, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot that comes to running events. But, you know, on the outside, you just think, I can do a better job than that. So... And, you know, probably initially our job wasn't better than the job that was being done. But, you know, you learn, I think um, some event managers don't learn from the bad stuff they do. And those events just get run down. But I think we managed to learn from the bad stuff that we'd done in, with events. And, and, you know, every event's different and every event has its own set of challenges. And, you know, probably over the course of the last 30 years now, I've probably seen just about every challenge that can be brought up in an event. So yeah. you work out how, you, how you're going to deal with those things. And, and you know, it's not, about, it's not about the failure. It's how you move on from the failure, really. So, um, yeah, we had some miserable events. I remember St Kilda, St Kilda Beach in Melbourne and Jeremy was at this race. Um, you know, 14 people on the line, westerly wind, 30 knots, five degrees, absolutely freezing and uh you know we we'd made the commitment to run a, a race there that day so we ran the race there that day so uh you know they're the sort of challenges you're faced with you know so um but you know it, it's what it is and and uh you know we're very fortunate in the situation that we have now and the support we get now from sure and partners and invest tech and everyone else that's involved with these races you know it's just um it's what i wanted to happen back in the early 2000s. But obviously these things take time and you've, you've got to develop them and you've got to develop them into something that, that a sponsor believes is worth being involved with. So that's hopefully where we're at today. Yeah, you're obviously a very, very busy guy for a long period of time. I guess that last 15, 20 years or so, you were, you were obviously running events, you were bringing in skis, you were setting up a, a life with Shireen, you were doing um, fireys, you were a boat captain. Um, how are you managing to to sort of control all of these different things that you were doing because obviously 
you were trying to get obviously income from the, the boat captain stuff and you became a fiery and you were obviously trying to run these events and actually you were still racing at this point as well. You were going around, you're flying to Africa, Europe and, and doing different events, but you, then you started obviously sponsoring different people. And so what was that whole process like when you started to really get into what a more the business world, but still trying to, to enjoy the whole experience because sometimes when you start to, to do all these other business things and you're working as well, the, when you're going away and you're doing these races, it's probably not as fun, but you've been able to manage that and created that lifestyle where you actually get to go out and enjoy you doing events now and everything like that. So how have you managed all these different facets of your life over the past sort of 20 years? Yeah, it was really tough there for a stage. I, I had a certain couple of little goals financially that I wanted to sort of get to. I'm not really big on goals. It's not my, my thing. I, I just like to sort of go with the flow and try and do the best I can at everything. But um, you know, I, I just wanted to get to a point, you know, have, you know, having three, three children as well that, that I felt comfortable. So I made, um, you know, an income, my priority and um, did that. Then everything else sort of fell in, fell in around that. So yeah, it was really busy, you know? So, you know, thank God Shireen was there, you know, we didn't have parents here in, in Sydney, you know, they'd come and visit, but mine are in Perth and Shireen's are in the U S so, that was a really, really tough period and Shereen did an amazing job with the boys, you know, so that was fantastic. And, and, um, you know, I, I was, I was away a lot, you know, I was driving a charter boat on, on Sydney Harbour. I was at the fire department or I was overseas or I was in Perth, you know, within a van or, you know, there, there was a lot of time I was away. So, um, it, it, it was a, it was a, a tough period, but I'm, I'm not saying it was bad. It was, it was good. And, and it, it was, it definitely, Gave put us in a in a good situation um, in in many ways and and uh, I I whilst you know going to the, setting up an event and trying to race in the event is tough. It's a really tough thing to do. I, I still enjoy it, you know. So even today, where we've done the doctor now for such a long period of time, it's still a real mission to do all that stuff. Um, but it's still really enjoyable, and and you know the enjoyment really comes from from just someone saying, thanks, that was unreal. That was one of the best events I've been to. You know, that's, that's where the enjoyment comes from now. It doesn't, it doesn't come from winning the race or, or getting the prize money or, or anything like that. Um, it's just, it's that, that's, all, that's all you want, you know? Yeah, you just want to go out there and have fun and enjoy the whole experience. And I guess for you, it's kind of giving back a little bit in a way to the sport that's given you so much and so much enjoyment and so much like love over a long period of time. Um, what's it like now, uh, I guess, running these different events? Like what was, what would you say has been your, your most fun experience in running races? And what do you probably say is one of your biggest disasters? I know you mentioned one before. Um, the fun, I reckon the, the doctor week last week was, was really enjoyable. It was, um, it was big days for us, but I had awesome, awesome support over there. You know, obviously Yander is the backbone of Ocean Paddler. She does all the, the grunt work. You know, I, I'm just, I just do all the fluffy stuff on the edges, but she does all the, the hard stuff that I'm too, too stupid to be able to do. Um, but you know, having Wally Williams over there helping out and, um, uh, Julian Shelbourne was over there, you know, he's, he's, joined our company now and, and works with us in doing different things. And, and then all this, there's a group of guys that I train called the spoons. So they, they contribute and help with everything, you know? So, um, 
And then, you know, those days, Gemma Smith was helping us out and Tommy Norton was helping us out. And it's just good to see those guys. You know, they, they really appreciate the effort that the event organisers are going to to make it good for them, you know, because they, they're the future of this sport. And, you know, Tommy, Tommy's out of their warehouse cleaning up crap and lifting skis. And, you know, this is day, the day before his race. And Gemma's there helping out as well. And she, we put Gemma in a room with Yander and, and Andrea and... and um, and yeah, she ended up getting roped into doing some work. So, but you know, they're both fantastic kids. And and uh, but that I think that's been one of the highlights was was that that week. And you know, it was Earl's idea to sort of come up with a week. And even though we sort of had the week there already in in the you know the West Coast Downwind and and the the Triple S events, you know, um, Ben Hewitt Triple S events, it was just good to have. Um, have it formal formalized into a, into a proper week, and I think I think that week in particular is is really the future of, of what this sport's all about, you know. And, and having four or five races over a week, having all those superstars there, and you know the the Nipper clinics, and and just it's just good fun, you know. Um, from uh, a, a downside, I think. Uh, <laughs> Leachy, Scott Wood and myself ran an um, ocean racing series down the, um, down the East Coast. It started at Mooloolabar one weekend, then it was uh, Byron, Coffs Harbour and then Sydney. And we thought, yeah, you know, this is back in the early, you know, mid, mid to late 90s. And we're like, yeah, you know, this would be really good, you know, make a few bucks and, and, um, and you know, set the world, ocean world on fire. And... Uh, we you know went down about thirty grand and and it was just a miserable experience you know I think I think the races were washed out uh, I know the last race in Sydney had a ripping northerly with rain it was just terrible so it was just a from an event perspective it was an absolute disaster you know we um we set ourselves back considerably financially and invested a fair bit of time in in losing money. <laughs> yeah well that, that that happens in business i guess you hear all those different stories of people uh i guess learning from failing and it's something that you just gotta sometimes do and you you try and know as much as you can but sometimes you go out there and you do it and you fail and that's just part and parcel of the whole experience and i guess it makes you stronger and you, and you know where your where your mistakes are same as training or racing if you go and race and you make a mistake you just try and make sure you don't make that mistake again and you, you sort of add that sort of like a little uh, I don't know, addition to your um, mentality and your training and the way you go about things so you make sure you don't do it again. But um, one thing I did want to go into was um, 20, 2004, you win your first other world championship that wasn't obviously the Molokai. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? I know it was in Cape Town and you had Herman and TJ and those guys racing in it. Was it a Miller's run or was it something different? No, so that race was um, devised by the, the Canoe Federation in, in South Africa. And what they did is they got some funding and they, they sent it to a, a whole bunch of different countries. Um, and we were one of them. And the funding was to get a team of six, I think it was, over there. A girl, um, an over 40 competitor maybe, and then four open competitors, something like that. And our team, our team was picked from one of our events, I think it was at Palm Beach, the event that we ran. Um, and Holly Husner was the girl. Uh, Rod Taylor was the over 40. And then there was John O'Chalmers, Tim Jacobs, Dave Kassane and myself were the, were the open paddlers. And um, so the race started in a place called Hout Bay, which is near where Dungeon Surf Break is. 
and went around out through dungeons and then down to um, to the city of Cape Town. And the course, according to most of the locals there, doesn't really produce good downwind. Uh, a lot of the time, it, it's very freaky that it does. But on this particular day, it had blown its head off all night, the night before, and there wasn't a great deal of wind on the day of it. But um, on the day we raced, um, there was still a lot of residual and there's a lot of open open water moving around down there. So there's there was big runs and, and Jono, Tim and myself took a bit of a gamble and uh, we sort of ducked inside dungeons and, and um, took the risk of getting cleaned up and the surf was big. And uh, we got, um, yeah, we got through. Herman was well out to sea, I think might've been with Dave and, and uh, a few of the other guys like David Mocky and Daryl Bartho and those boys. And Lewis Laughlin was in the race as well. And um, yeah, so we sort of got that advantage and I didn't know, it was such a big ocean, so much movement that you didn't really know where you were, but um, it wasn't so I got sort of coming around Clifton, Clifton Beach and, and more towards Cape Town that I realized I was actually in front. And uh, so yeah, I ended up winning that race from Herman and then Timmy J was, was third. Um, so that was that was a fantastic experience, and I, I, I sort of that was two thousand and four. So I was sort of on my wind down, right? So I, I, I didn't expect to do that well in that race, given that it wasn't a, a real downwind race. But there was just enough out there for me to to, to make it happen, and um, yeah. So it was it was a really unique experience. It was fantastic, and the sun the sun was out. It was just a really great great event. Yeah, and you're 39 at this stage, and you're still racing quite well. I remember coming into ocean paddling oh, probably in 2010, and you were still smacking me. What, what is it like, obviously, going on that other end of it? So you get, I sort of reach the mountain around, let's say, 35, and you start to come down the other side there, but you're still racing quite well to your 50. And I know you've told me that a few times, that once I hit 50, that's when I really went downhill. What's it like as an athlete to sort of have all this success and really enjoy the whole process and, and get better. Then you obviously have different life obstacles along the way, but then you get to the other side of that. Do you just look back and you really appreciate the times where you were the best or is it just become your, your, your mental side of it and the, and the way that you look at things just completely change? Yeah, I think that's the toughest part for anyone that got, reaches that point of their life is, is if they want to keep being involved in it and keep doing it, they've got to realize that they're not there anymore. So, um, once you realise that, you start to enjoy it again. And I must admit, it took me a little while to realise that, you know. I would look at, um, the, at guys that might go past me in a race and go, that shouldn't be happening. But um, it, it's got to happen at some point. And when you accept that and, and start looking at the races new and saying, I'm just going to go out and do the best I can, then you're going you're gonna to enjoy them. You know, I, I hear guys all the time that are in their 40s and have sort of finished their really competitive uh, sports life saying, oh, I haven't done enough training for the event. It's not about that. It's just about doing the best you can. That's what sport's all about. You know, the result is secondary. It's, it's about doing the best you can and, and just enjoying the sport for what it is. And um, yeah, it does take you a while to learn that though. So I've always been a big believer of throwing myself into everything. So, you know, there's probably a couple of Molokais over there where there's no way on paper and on, and on training and, and on the background that I've done that previous summer that I should have been in the mix and I might've won them, you know? So, 
And then it works the other way too, where you are completely in the mix, where you should be in the mix. You've done everything you possibly can, but you're not in the mix for other reasons. So um, to anyone that sort of thinks, oh, I haven't done enough training for this event or I haven't done enough training for the doctor, you've got to throw yourself in it. It's just, it's just what it is. Yeah, well, that's a funny point you bring up, I guess. Um, I've noticed myself as well when I'm racing, it's, it's more about just going out there and doing your best as you're speaking about. But honestly, can you ever really do enough work? Can you ever really do enough training? It's like that whole thing about trying to reach perfection and trying to have that perfect scenario that you're going to go in and everything's going to be perfect in a race world. Never happens. There's always like a whole mountain of shit that happens, especially when you're going to events like we have for a long time or you for a lot longer. And you, as you're talking about going to Molokai, it's like, it's never smooth sailing. Nothing ever goes to plan. Like you either get sick, you get like you're on a plane, you don't feel well, like you, you're too tired, the, the, the conditions don't line up, your boat captain doesn't, doesn't turn up or tells you the night before the race he's not going over that day or your engine blows up or your ski gets damaged or like just all sorts of shit happens. How, how have you dealt with that over time? Is it just like gone down to just doing your best every time that you go out there and you do something? Like, is it, is it just ingrained in you now as well? Like when you're going forward and you're doing all these different entrepreneurial things and business stuff, is that now where you take your competitive drive as well? Yeah, you know, like I, I was always big on, on like when we did Sharknet uh, sessions, I would always try and start myself behind the run, right? So you put yourself in the worst possible situation. Sometimes I would train, I'd go training with my legs too short or I'd go with my legs too long because mm. you might do that in a race. You know, you might set up your ski and everything's adjustable now, right? So you might set your ski up on the beach thinking it's right and then it's not when you get into the race. So you've, you've got to be able to cope with it, you know? So um, if, you, if your pedal moves or something during the race, you have to find ways to, to make it work for you. You know, we've all had... I think the Avon Descent's a good one for that because everything breaks in the Avon Descent, right? So <laughs> yeah. you, get, you get used to, to paddling with things that are broken. So, um, uh, you know, so that's, um, I think that that's really important is that you, you, you can't have everything perfect. And, and, and our environment of racing in the ocean, nothing's ever perfect. And, you know, it's a little bit more static when you're, when you're doing, say, sprint kayaking or even marathon kayaking where you're on a body of water that's relatively tame or, or is tame or swimming in a pool. Uh, they're really easy things that you've got a lot, of, lot more control over, over, the, over the things. But you're right, even in those things, you can still get sick or something can happen. So uh, I yeah. think in our environment, you've got to prepare, you've got to make yourself ready for the worst case scenario. Yeah, and what was the Avon Descent like for you? Because I've never done it. I've paddled down it once and you've spoken about it a fair, fair few times in this interview already, but did you do it a lot of times and was it something that you really enjoyed doing? Because it was obviously a lot of different water moving, some flat sections, but I know I haven't done much of it, but I know that in the experience that I did have, it was kind of quite fun because it was very different the way that the water moves obviously in a river and down rapids and it does in the ocean. Yeah, it's, it's a very unique event. You know, it's, um, you know, the South Africans do a lot of river races and, and the Avon descent's really the only one we have. I know there's one in North Queensland that I've never gotten to, but, um, uh, I'm not really a big river racing man, but it was just that's pretty well all we had in Perth, you know, when it came to to doing things outside of clubbies. So um, it was everyone in my era was was brought up through, you know, I gave you something to train for through winter. And if you were there in Perth, I was never really there. But um, uh, I didn't do it a lot, but I did it probably intermittently 
I did it more actually when I moved to New South Wales. So I did it with Leachy a few times. I actually brought Leachy over. And then after that, the Uncle Toby's got hold of it and they brought Clint Robinson and all those guys over. And um, used to do it in teams with Jeremy and Matty Rees and done it with Brett Tyke and a whole range of different people. Uh, Reese Baker and, and um, but yeah, it, it's sort of something that I did more after I left Perth, to be quite honest. I'd probably done it two or three times before I moved to New South Wales. I did it the first time I did it as a 14 year old on a, um, uh, a single ski with a, um, another seat put in it. Yeah. And uh, Murray Smith, who's a surfboard maker in there, made, put a seat in the back of a double ski for us, of a single ski for us. And I did it with a guy called Dave Shaw. And, we snapped our nose off at um, at Sid's Rapids. Uh, we we, we uh, t- duct taped it or hot glued it back together or did something to it, but we ended up finishing the race. So, and that's what that whole thing's all about. It's it's just one of those um, you know battles. It's just a it's just an absolute battle to do it. It's it's freezing cold on your second day. You know you're chipping ice off your boat and. It's, it's everything about it is stuff that I despise about paddling, but it's just something that I, I, you know, I really like being involved. I have liked being involved with, you know, I've done it for a while now and the race has sort of lost a lot of its prestige or, or where it actually sits in the calendar. But, you know, it's, um, it's definitely an experience, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely something I want to do eventually and maybe even if I'm at home this year and, and actually I are able to run it, it might be something I, might, I can throw my sort of sink my teeth into and have a, have a crack and probably just get flogged and go swimming a lot and get really cold. But it'll be something different, something fun to do. Is there any other experiences out, I guess, in your career where you've gone over to different events that you've really enjoyed? Like I know you've spoken about um, the events really expanding over the last sort of 20 years like there was sort of just Molokai for a long time then you sort of had that just Tahiti race coming in then I guess you had like European events to start then you had like a few uh, American or North American events that really started to take hold have you done many of those events and what sort of um, events did you really enjoy going to well there was this event uh, in Quebec in, in Canada that they had for a couple of years and it was five grand Canadian for the win I remember it um, and I I flew to Canada to do this race. It was called the Grand, I think it was called the Grand Traversy. And a mate of mine, Billy Wilson here, had done it the year before. He was working as a lifeguard in New Jersey. So they'd gone done it. And um, so I thought I'll go, I'll go and do that. So I, I flew to Canada with my ski via, Van, you know, to, to Quebec via Vancouver. And my ski didn't get out of Vancouver. So I'm in Quebec, I don't have a ski. Uh, the race went from one side of the St. Lawrence Seaway to the other, which I think was about 60K. Yeah. And it finished in this town called St. Luce, I think it was called. And that, they're all Frenchies and um, full-on Catholics in that region. So the, at the start of the... So I ended up getting hold of a, a 16-foot sea kayak to race in. And um, so they put me in the sea kayak category. Yeah. And uh, so the race... <laughs> The race starts in, and uh, obviously the guys on the skis took off. They were gone. And, and then I was wash riding a, um, a double little sea kayak. And uh, they were yelling at me because you weren't, you know, it was dishonorable to wash ride in, in this race apparently. So they're yelling at me in French. And, and uh, so I ended up getting off their wash and paddling away from them. And prior to the race, the organisers said, yeah, just, just go to the church. You know, look for the big church. So if you've ever been to Eastern Canada, every, every town there has 15 churches and they're all big. 
Yeah. And so I'm looking at the shore and I'm looking for this church. And anyway, I, I find out where to finish. And the reason I could find out was there was 10,000 people on the beach. It was huge. And every single one of them wanted to hug you. So you get in and you were like a superstar and these people were just throwing themselves at you. And, and it was just an absolutely incredible experience. And, uh, the race fell over the next year, which is kind of at the time that was happening a lot with events, you know, in that time frame. But uh, absolutely amazing experience. And I ended up winning the sea kayak category and a couple of the Frenchies wanted to kill me because, um, you know, they said I was an elite paddler. I should have been in the elite category, not the sea kayak category. And, but, but I was on a sea kayak, right? So I, I won the sea kayak category. So I was a, the Grand Traversy sea kayak champion. Well, there you go. That was a, that, and that's probably one of the biggest races of surf you've probably ever done if you had 10,000 people on the beach coming in and giving you all hugs and kisses. And oh, it was absolutely stuff. massive. Yeah, incredible. And was, um, is, is there any other, because like, I know for me in ocean racing and, and all these different types of events, it's, all been, it's always been about the experience. It's always been about the community of paddling and actually going away and having a good time with your friends and, and sort of having a race on, off the back of that. How important is that type of, I guess, community spirit and mentality for you, when, not only when running events, but actually competing in them yourself. And, and what is it about ocean paddling that's kept you in it for so long and, and being able to build businesses, a lifestyle and basically your whole life around ocean paddling? Yeah, you know what? There's all these little families that, we've, that have been created from this sport, you know? So I think, um, you know, I look at my paddling group and, and the friends that, I have in that group now, you know, when I first started that I, I had all these guys, you know, turn up in sea kayaks and I thought, crikey, what do we got here? And, and, you know, these people moved on to skis and they've all become, we've all become friends, you know, and it's just, um, it's a fantastic community. It's, um, and, and, you know, you, you line up on the line and you might have, you know, Corey Hill next to you um, on that side, but you might have Joe the Butcher on the other side who got into paddling last week, he's on his bluefin and he's doing the same race. And, and uh, at the end of the race, Corey's going to talk to Joe the Butcher and have a beer with him because, you know, that's what this community's created. It's just a, um, it's an amazing community. And, and um, I think it's a lot different to some of the other sports that I've been involved with, like kayaks and clubby, where I think, um, you know, there seems to be a lot more aggression and, and there seems to be a mellowness about doing distance races on the sea. It sort of creates um, um, a mellowness inside you because I think, I think sometimes you can treat paddling on the ocean as a sport or you can treat it as a recreation. I paddled this morning with um, a mate of mine, Nick Curtis. We paddled just nice and easy from, from Collaroy up to Warrywood. And back, and I was just going, this is incredible. And, and you know, since this whole um, uh, virus thing started, you know, we've just been, I've just been meeting one or two people, at, you know, a couple of days a week. And we've been doing these amazing paddles that, that have, um, this, this, you know, if, you, if you're reaching double figures in speed and distance, you're doing pretty well on your GPS. But um, it's, um, it's just been really, really enjoyable. You know, I've really enjoyed this. And I think that's... Um, that's what this sport can do for you. It can, you can treat it as a sport and you can, you can get all psycho about it and aggressive. But I think a lot of the times the ocean itself will bring you back to a, a reality and a, a mellowness that, that uh, it helps create. 
Yeah, the ocean is always that true equaliser. It's I guess it's I've I've heard a lot in these podcasts is um, just like how good it is for the people's mental health and actually being out, get out there and have that conversation with Corey and Joe the butcher. Like everyone sort of feels part of this family and actually is able to really appreciate the sport for what it is. And it's yes, it, it can be competitive at times. And when we get on the line, it's, it's about racing. But when we finish, it's it's all about just having a good time with our friends and having that experience that we can go back and, and tell our friends about and really enjoy it. And that's something that I, I guess I've really appreciated about the sport. And I guess I've got to thank people like you for really bringing the sport to the forefront that it, it is today. Um, is there is there any sort of other things that's going on at the moment, like with this COVID crisis that you're sort of being able to deal with a little bit better or being able to sort of get yourself through this time? Because obviously events are getting cancelled. Um, obviously, like you might have committed to different sponsorships or all these different things that as a business owner and a, an event director, I guess you've got to deal with. Is there, is there ways that you've been able to deal with this? Obviously, Australia's seems to have dealt with it a little bit better than other nations, but it's obviously still a very, been a very big challenge for a lot of different businesses. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for us, um, for us personally, I'll, I'll speak about our business first. Um, from a, a sales perspective, the virus has had an impact on us, but the fact that our factory, you know, the fan factory burnt down last year in, in South Africa has played a bigger part in, in a situation that we're currently in. Um, add to that that they've been locked down now there for six to eight weeks where they can't, they can't even go to work. They've only been able to start work again this week at a very limited level. So at about 10% level. So, um, you know, we're, from our perspective, selling surf skis, it's, um, it's, it's, it's put us back a fair bit. Um, but, you know, I, I love the attitude that, that Keith and the crew over there have, you know, they just, we just keep working through it and just do the best we can. And, and fortunately for us, we, we had a lot of stock in Australia at the time. So, it, that that side of things we're, we're managing to sort of to, to wiggle through and and you know if we get stock again soon then we're not too bad so that's been a, a bit of a downer for us from a business perspective from the events you know we have very very good people that that support the events um, you know I've paddled with Earl a fair bit over the last from Shore and Partners over the last couple of weeks during this crisis because you know, there's been no traffic on the road, so he's come up to the northern beaches and we've been doing some paddling together. And, you know, he's probably the most understanding sponsor you'll ever come across. You know, there's, yeah. there's, um, there's, no, there's no stress from him on, on, um, on what we need to do. And um, everyone that's been involved with the events, I've said, let's, let's chat again in the first week in June because there's really no point talking about the events until we know for sure that we can actually run the events. So... Um, you know, we're still going through the process of putting a, trying to get approvals and stuff like that for, as you have to do well in advance for a, a lot of the events. But um, I think, you know, I, I can't say what's going to happen with the events at this point, but I, I think at, at, the, at, at the very least, we'll see a, um, a, a, a reduction in the number of events that, that run this year. So um, from our perspective, um, but I think we'll hopefully we'll still be able to get away with the big ones. Um, yeah. So and then for me personally, it's um, I've actually, to be quite honest, I've actually really enjoyed um, this sort of period. It feels like going back in time, you know, where there's no traffic on the roads, the kids are home every day, um, even though the homeschooling thing can get a little bit tough at times. But um, 
you know, everything seems to have wound back a few notches and it's actually, it's actually very relaxing and, and um, uh, it's been, it, I've actually kind of enjoyed it. You know, we've been lucky here in Sydney. We've had predominantly good weather. Um, so that makes it better as well. And I'm still, I still go to work. I've still got the fire brigade and we're still, you know, we've reduced um, our workload in the business because we don't have as much work because the events tend to give us most of our work. Yeah. Um, so that's pulled back a little bit. Um, and as to be quite honest, there's been a massive interest in paddling. So a lot of people have wanted to get into paddling over this period. You know, I had a guy call me from Rushcutters Bay the other day. He said he saw some people paddling past. He wants to get a ski. He's never paddled before. Yeah. So he got a ski. So um, <laughs> now he's, he's loving it. You know, he sent me a message saying, I'm loving this. So, um, you know, there's all these people that want to get into paddling. And that I think, you know, the, the worst case scenario is that's, that's going to create a bit of a base of, of people that'll, that'll feed the, um, the sport, the growth of the sport and, and the growth of, of people's businesses that are, that are tribute from that sport. It is quite interesting that you do say that about the, the business side of things and, and seeing that leisure and sports really grow after this period because I think it's been, as you say, a, quite a calming period. Everyone gets to relax, like everyone starts to realise what's actually important in their lives and they're probably not, we sort of get caught up in that sort of wheel where we're just like grinding and we're trying to move forward and we're trying to move forward and then everyone had to stop. And it was kind of like a level playing field, but everyone had to rest at the same time, whether that was in sport or in business. And I think coming to the other side of this whole thing, you're going to actually see business and leisure, leisure and, act, and, and fitness and sport actually move forward because more people are going to want to get involved that haven't really done it because they've been focusing on their career or they've been focusing on like different things in their life. But now they're like, I get so much enjoyment out of sport and activity, like that guy that you're talking about who just started up paddling. I think there's going to be a lot of that coming forward. And I think it's going to be a really exciting time for people in those businesses. But going forward for you, what do you see yourself doing in the next three, five years? Like what, what's, what's, what's you going to really step up and, and really want to be doing over this next period? Like I know you've got a young family or the boys are getting older now as well. And you've got all these different business interests going on. What, what's, what's next for you? Um, from the ocean paddler side, I, I, I really love doing the trips. You know, we had a, we managed to squeeze a trip in prior to uh, this whole, whole thing. And, um, paddled from Perth up to Durian Bay, 200 kilometres. And uh, I really enjoy that stuff, you know. So that's the, um, that's the best part of, of what we do. I, I love that stuff. And um, I, I would like to do more of that and go to some more, some fun places. You know, I, I love doing this, going to fun places and, and um, keeps me interested in, in being out on the water and, and, you know, making, creating a bit of a challenge. Uh, so I think that's one thing that we'll look at uh, doing more of. Um, and then, you know, obviously still growing the events is still higher on our priority list. Um, you know, really build up this WA race week and, and then, you know, we're involved with the 20 beaches with Justin Ryan and, and that crew, you know, so we want to see that get bigger and, and then the whole Australian Ocean Racing Series, you know. So, you know, obviously... Um, we don't expect, you know, Shore and Partners to be around forever. So um, they're a fantastic sponsor. So we've got to make sure that this this can continue well after, um, you know, they're gone. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm hopefully Earl's locked in for another ten years. I did hear him mention something about ten years. Um, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll lock him. We'll lock him into that. Hey, Earl, if you're listening, we're, we're locking you in. But 
No, they've been they've been absolutely amazing, Sean Partners, Earl, Alan, and all the team, just being able to help, I guess, facilitate your dream as well. Because I guess when you started doing this back in 2001, you really wanted to push the sport and see it go to the next level with the events and getting more people into skis and really, I guess, helping people see the enjoyment that you got out of it and really sort of expanding that growth. And I think you've done an amazing job. And I think a lot of a lot of ocean paddling or most of ocean paddling in Australia is credited to your I guess persistence and determination to actually see it to to fulfill to this level now and we and we have these amazing partners in the sport and um yeah mate I think um looking back I think you'd be pretty proud of, of what you've been able to achieve that's for sure yeah you know it's um it's been it's been great you know the whole the whole trip's been great so uh you know even on the the, the bad times it's been good so it's just what it is you know so Hopefully, yeah, you know, um, we'd like to see it get bigger. And then when you take over the running of the events. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll take that on for you. No worries. I got, I got it covered. So, you know, that's, um, that's uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're happy where we are now. It's just, uh, you, know, you deal with the, the bad and you make the most of the good. So, yeah, it's a good time right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, mate, um, I really appreciate your time today. Um, where we were looking at footage before, it was from the the new YouTube channel uh, for Ocean Paddler. So they've got all their old vintage footage, all the events that they've run. Uh, if you want to check it out, just go on YouTube and type in Ocean Paddler. They've got a whole new channel there. Um, to follow Ocean Paddler stuff, I think Instagram is at Ocean Paddler, A-U-S. Um, Instagram, uh, Facebook, Ocean Paddler. There's a whole bunch of stuff always going on. I'll check out their website, www.ocean.com oceanpallet.com i'd let you do it but i probably know it better than you do so i thought i'd just run through them for you thank you what's <laughs> yeah. our phone number i don't have that you can <laughs> want to throw the number out <laughs> you probably don't know it either you i don't it. but I'll give, I'll give them yours yeah don't do that. <laughs> well actually my number's everywhere anyway so it's on my website so it's not really that hard to find out but uh, mate i really appreciate all your time today it was great obviously hearing about a lot of your backstory and actually um getting involved in, in, in obviously your childhood and then gradually moving into surf life saving and then doing the ocean paddling molokai's and all the um, entrepreneurial stuff you did after that to bring ocean paddling to uh, more people and especially here in australia and around the world so part of the ocean paddling community I, I have to say thank you for bringing this sport into a lot of our lives because if it wasn't for you i actually wouldn't wouldn't be doing this and probably not, not doing what i'm doing now so Thanks, mate. And um, I do really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Boothie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. And just to everybody out there watching or listening, um, to listen to these, if you want to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, they're all in there. Michael Booth um, and Boothcast on Facebook. Uh, there's a whole section there. I had to split up the, 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 the playlist because it got a bit too big. So um, doing great things. If anybody you want, you want me to get on, please let me know. And um, yeah, it's been really fun talking to all these great paddlers, great people in the paddling community. And I'll, I'll keep it going, that's for sure. So Dean, thanks again for your time. And I'll talk to you very soon. Bye.